You're listening to Decay Mag Horror Entertainment News Podcast Online source for news Interviews and trending topics Good afternoon, good evening, good morning My name is Ken Artsus, founder for DK Mag You're listening to DK Mag Horror Entertainment News Podcast This is Season 9 Episode 7, and we're doing something a little bit different in this podcast episode. We are going to be featuring our first one of many upcoming networking cross collaborative efforts between other podcasters in the horror genre. We feature the first hour and a roundtable discussion that we conducted over at Everything Horror and the first segment delves on the holiday f- anthology A Christmas Horror Story that podcast over at Everything Horror Podcast was two segments the first is the aforementioned one and the second is the film Krampus do stop by Everything Horror Podcast to check out the second segment our plus segment once again we feature the first hour of the segment hosted at everything horror podcast to which we participated and afterwards hop on over to everything horror podcast to hear the second segment which is all about the film krampus this is first one of many collaborative efforts that we would have in store for the 2019 calendar year to which we network and cross collaborate cross promote each other's podcast in efforts to grow each other grow our audiences because it's all about networking and helping like-minded people peers in the field that you are in is not about being competitive uh, whose podcast sounds better whose pot it's all about helping your fellow man collaborate and that is how you progress. You give positive energy, positive energy comes back at you. And that is principle for entrepreneur endeavors. In any event, stick around. On this podcast, we have exclusive interviews featured in this episode. We have a conversational interview with Justin McConnell writer director for the upcoming horror film life changer we also have a conversational interview with niall shkula he is the writer director for the horror short film currently in film festival circulation titled a doll distorted and closing out our exclusive interview segment is a returning guest here at dk mag horror entertainment news podcast megan friels johnson and for those who are aware or familiar megan friels johnson released the epic film in my opinion that was truly unique in the horror genre the ice cream truck which is currently available now on vod and part of our discussion with megan friels johnson is her upcoming production hunting season but the bulk of our conversation delves on topic of women in horror her film career 
and of course entrepreneurial endeavors in horror cinema. Once again, our first segment is a roundtable that we participated, and we're providing the first recording here that we did over at Everything Horror Podcast, which will be on the film A Christmas Horror Story. Following that, we have the three exclusive interviews, and. Once you finish with our podcast, hop on over to Everything Horror Podcast and catch the second R Plus segment in which we discuss Krampus. Once again, my name is Ken Artuz, founder for DK Mag. Without further ado, let's get this podcast episode started. Christmas Horror Story Roundtable Part 1 As mentioned at the top of the show, here is the first 20 plus minutes of our participation over at Everything Horror Podcast in which the topic of discussion was A Christmas Horror Story. Of course, it's the anthology film starring William Shatner and participating in that discussion were Paul Dolsky, Tessa Baker from Everything Horror Podcast, as well as new member of the Everything Horror Podcast staff, Tristan Nati. Also joining were, of course, Stacy Cox, my co-host here at DK Mag Horror Entertainment News Podcast, and myself, Without further ado, here is the first 20 plus minutes of our roundtable discussion. Hello, everybody, and welcome to an exciting new roundtable tonight where a lot of us and maybe one person, if they might show up later on, um, just comes in out of the blue. But until then, I am Paul Dosky from Everything Horror Podcast. And I am Tessa Baker from Everything Horror Podcast. And with us today, too, we have a special new member for the Everything Horror Podcast. And I'll actually like him to introduce himself. So please, Hi guys. the new member. Hi, guys. My name is Tristan Knott. Um, I just got recruited to the crew not that long ago. But um, thank you guys for having me, and I really appreciate it. Welcome aboard. Happy to have you as well, Tristan. And for those that are interested, you guys can find the Everything Horror Podcast on the following platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, um, at the uh, handle of EH Podcast. And you can pretty much find all the links just by visiting our website at EH Podcast. That is E-H-P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S dot com. And with us, we have some special guests as well, as you may know them. So I will hand over to them to do their introduction. Greetings. This is Ken Artuz from DK Mag. Stacey Cox, staff correspondent for DK Mag. So the first topic is a Christmas horror story. Now... To start this off, we figured we're going to have our new recruit, Tristan, take on the first hot seat of the night. 
So Tristan, if you could be so kind, could you tell the listeners of how you would describe the film A Christmas Horror Story? Well, Paul, um, I describe it as just like any other anthology um, horror film, just like Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Darkness. Um, It's a story about different like Christmas horror topics, you know, Krampus and all that. Um, To me, I really loved the movie itself i mean they could have done a lot with it but to me that it's really one of those movies i really recommend if you're a horror fan like me like you paul and ken and stacy um and the way the story goes is just very creative and i i loved it and what what are your thoughts, Ken? What do you, what do you think about it? Uh, at first, I was kind of weary. Uh, you know, uh, we always say, "Don't judge a book by its cover," but subconsciously, we we do sometimes. When we go buy a book or go to the grocery store, we always look for this awesome graphics that calls our attention. So when I saw the cover and I see Krampus fighting Santa Claus, I said to myself, what type of cheesiness are we going to be in for? What what did Paul have us watch this time? But I watched it and I actually enjoyed it. It was, I mean, wow, the, the acting, the, the CGI, everything comes together pretty good. I, I'm surprised this, this film just went under the radar for me. Well, yeah, definitely. I'm surprised that you actually never heard of it, Ken. I, I I heard of it, but it just uh, overlooked it, uh, and I never oh, watched it. Uh, it now? But first of all, I I just don't enjoy the Christmas season at all. So anything, even when it's hard, it has to do with Christmas. I'm like, ah, oh, here we go, another Christmas story here. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! It's not Cramp- Mother Krampus. Or uh, so calm, <laughs> calm down. Calm down. <laughs> but um, no, uh, what happened with this film for Tessa and I is we were um, watching, or we, we were on Netflix, and we we're just looking for movies around the holiday time, and we found it on Netflix, and we're like, "What is this?" So. Think kind of like with you. We see the cover of Santa Claus fighting Krampus, and we're just like, okay. So let's dive into it. And within, what was it, like 30 minutes into this film, I was already on Amazon buying my own copy of the film. I was like, oh, yeah, this is good. They they did a good job with it. (laughs) It's the same night when I also bought my own copy of uh, the next movie we're going to be talking about with Krampus. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I actually really enjoyed this um, with the way they combined all the stories and how they tie into some of the stuff, which Tessa will probably talk about a little bit, too. Is, but, I mean, um, Stacy, how did you like A Christmas Horror Story? Um... 
I enjoyed it. It's a great anthology. Um, <clears throat> I think the highlight of the movie for me is the showdown between Santa and Krampus. Um, uh, I thought it was uh, epic, um, but I also liked the story, you know, with the family, how I think it was the little boy who had, you the know, become, story. huh? The changeling story. I think so. The family that was going to get the Christmas tree and then next yeah. thing you know, yeah, I liked how that played out as well. Did you also catch that? Um that father of the child is actually the cop for the ghost story. Yeah. The school ghost story. He was the investigating cop on that story. So each character from each story ties into the other story in the anthology somehow. Yes. Yes. I caught that. Um, so yeah, this is actually, it's, it's one of the better anthologies. I'm going to say um, as far as like, Krampus goes is not my favorite like Krampus film per se, but um it's well written. Uh one of the better anthologies again, so I do like how um how it plays out. That is that is true. That is true. Uh Tessa, what are your thoughts on more of the uh Christmas horror story? Well, like every, I think we all can agree that it is a really good um, horror anthology um, movie, surprisingly, even with the um, Christmas background in it. Um, I liked, like, how you were saying, because um, you and I talked about this earlier, about how there's um, different characters from each story, and they're somehow connected to the other story so each story is connected by at least a character somehow like for the the school ghost story one the the cop um scott who investigated the the murders of the two the two teens that died in that one jenna and connor was tied into the changeling story and so was caprice who's in the krampus story she made an appearance in the school ghost story and you know how storm and norman is in the beginning in the reality but he's also santa claus in the zombie elf one and so everybody's kind of connected in each story somehow there's at least one character um i actually um like the whole anthology overall, I liked how certain elements were in it um, and how in the Krampus one, how there was a spirit of Krampus that could overtake um, an individual who had enough hatred and anger in their heart that they could become the embodiment of Krampus. So I thought that was kind of cool for that story at least. So um, overall, I liked it. Yeah, I mean, I think we can all agree, as like Stacy was saying, this is definitely one of the better anthology for, um, we'll say winter steam, really, because I mean, I don't, I can't really think of that many anthology horror winter themes anyway that come to that really tied Christmas into 
you know, the whole thing, really. And, I mean, Ken, correct me if I'm wrong, too, but, I mean, it's just one of those type of films, too, where you got to appreciate all the stories, especially if they tie in with the other story that is going on, too. Yeah, I've seen my fair share of anthology films, and I, as Stacy has mentioned, uh, one thing that is truly different with this film is how all the story is seamless. It's not the usual format of an anthology that the uh, there's an intermission or there's a host and he introduces the next story. Everything just flows so seamless, and you, it just keeps you interested until the end of the film. I I, I like this approach. I I gotta stick with repeat myself again how did this film go under the radar <laughs> it's, it's it's well put together and and one thing that made me uh, laugh was when i see william shatner was part of the cast i'm like oh okay is this gonna be campy are we gonna see b-movie acting now well no even william shatner was a good addition yeah he and then we got uh I forget I forget the actor's name right now, but the one that played uh, Norman. I mean, I loved his uh, his attitude when he was leaving the uh, radio station with the great big sign that says "Fuck Christmas." <laughs> but but we'll get into that in a little bit too. But I mean, it is quite interesting how something like that will play into the bigger story of what's going on of why Santa Claus is. Uh, battle and Krampus and uh it's just you know I mean it's I won't lie that that was a really cool ending I'm just gonna flat out say it I mean that ending was so cool I enjoyed how they did the whole Santa and Krampus and uh Tristan what what are your thoughts about the ending of how you've come to find out the whole story behind who exactly is Santa and Krampus? Well, Paul, um, to me, that was like the hook of the whole story. You know, when the movie first starts, we have that awesome soundtrack with the little child singing Christmas Eve and all that. And then we have that little hook where that little turn where we figure out that the guy from the radio station is actually thinking in his mind that he's Santa Claus and that he's facing all these zombie elves and spoilers for not for people that haven't watched it. And all that ties in together to this one town and it's like whoa like it just takes you by surprise it really does and also like how like you also have to think is this guy mentally like did he have a mental breakdown or did he have like does he have like schizophrenia or you know what I mean right and and like that's where it 
like really hooks you in and like, whoa, I'd watch this again. Like to me, I'd watch it 20 times. <laughs> and it to me, the hook and everything into that movie was very, very well done. All right. <clears throat> But what are your thoughts, Stacy? Like, did you like it as well as much as me and Paul did? Mm. Like, what are your thoughts about it? Are you talking about uh, the movie in general? Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Like I said, uh, I don't think it, it wasn't a bad movie. Uh, it, it was actually pretty good. Like I said I like how it played out. Um. And I mean, not to down talk the film or anything. Um, it's not like my favorite, you know, Christmas horror movie. And again, right. with the whole Krampus, um, how they incorporated Krampus, because actually not too long ago, fairly recently, Krampus, just the idea of Krampus when I found out about him became intriguing to me, like uh, for the longest, I never knew Santa Claus had this dark spirit or the evil spirit for, you know, the people who stopped believing or, you know, the children who were bad and everything. So wait, when I thought, what? Yeah, I know. It's shocking. Um, I mean, I'm <laughs> telling you, it fairly recently I found out about this character. And ever since then, I became so intrigued, you know. And so I'm watching all these Krampus related films. And I guess in A Christmas Horror Story, I wasn't a big fan of the makeup of that Krampus, like how, you know, the costuming and everything. Reading about Krampus, I, I forget which website I found it on, but reading about the history of Krampus and everything and how he looked, I thought it was a more generic version of Krampus. Uh, so I guess that's why I wasn't a very big fan. But again, that ending, that showdown between Senna and Krampus was probably the highlight of the film for me. <laughs> it was a good payoff. It was. And uh, congrats to the writing team behind this film. They really know how to uh, put all the stories together. And from INDB, that's Jason Philokraut, James Key, Sarah Larkson, Doug Taylor, and Pascal Trottier. Uh, amazing. Uh, it's not, not every day you get to see an anthology that really comes together with a big payoff. It wants the viewer to stay intrigued until the end. No, I agree. Um, I mean... Uh, I will agree with Stacy. That Krampus is kind of funky, and what makes it even more weird is I never knew Krampus had a really long ass tongue, like Gene, uh, <laughs> Gene, Gene Simmons. <laughs> yeah, Gene Simmons from Kiss did. I mean, la, 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 la. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, um, trying to get fresh. Trying to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what the hell is going on? And like. I th I think with the whole idea of that though, like I like how it came to be with, you know, you get that sh the naughty little boy where should I actually no not naughty like well misbehaved child that clearly just doesn't care if he breaks somebody else's property or not, and 
by breaking the Krampus statue. I'm assuming between that and the daughter taking the... Caprice stealing the lighter. Yeah. That Gerhardt was provoked and became the embodiment of Krampus. Yes. So that whole scene played out pretty nicely, especially the scenes in the woods when Krampus is hunting them down with the chain. That was pretty well done. I like that because it was just like you don't know where Krampus chain is going to come from and drag you at any point in time. So Krampus in this film was a cross between Pinhead with the chains and Venom with his tongue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But one thing. Yeah. Wow, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about Hellraiser Eater until Candice mentioned it. <laughs> uh, but one thing for for a Christmas horror story is the the way the CGI was used. And I, I for one, I don't like CGI. I like practical effects. But here, the CGI comes together fairly nicely. And we could talk about the, that and also the practical effects. I particularly enjoyed the costuming for Krampus. I think most, there's too many films to, to even think about and compare and each have their own Krampus look. But this one was quite unique and it's all white, looks like a ram, looks like a demon and it's got a little bit of everything going on. It, it feels original for this for this film. I'm trying to think. The Ching, the Ching, um, oh god, the Chingolin story was not too horrible. But I mean, I thought there was a couple flaws about it, especially it, when the child has uh, an inhaler, and then all of a sudden. He doesn't need it. It kind of reminds me like, um, not to get off topic again, but just to kind of prove my point is we get like something similar with Alien Covenant. We got uh, Walter, who is a android that can heal himself. And then we got David, who can't heal himself. And then during that big weird twist in Alien Covenant, spoiler for those that haven't seen it, but that fight scene of Walter and David, and then after that, when we get that mysterious one where we don't know who actually won, and then he he uh, asked the crew to be patched up. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Well, hold on a minute. They clearly should know Walter can heal himself, and David can't. So it's just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, we should have put two and two together and figured out that it was David and not Walter. But and then and then in this case, they should have realized, hmm, my son's not using the inhaler anymore like he was, especially with the walk trying to get the Christmas tree. Something can't be right here. Uh Tristan, what were your thoughts about the Chango and uh story? Well, what I I really liked the story. Um, it was very unique in every sort of way. You know, their kid goes disappearing, and then they find him. But also, Paul, like you pointed out earlier, that 
you know, he stopped using his inhaler and all that. But also, did anyone notice that the little boy wasn't talking? He wasn't saying yes. a word. He was just quiet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then right then and there, like, to me, I was like, all right, so there's something wrong with this kid. Like, there's something wrong. <laughs> Look at the kid's appetite. <clears throat> yeah, exactly, Paul. He, like, gorgeous. And <laughs> earlier on in the story, the mother checks in on the little boy, and he has his window open. He likes it absolutely cold in the room. Like... Right then and there, I'd been like, all right, something that would have happened. Everything just seems out of place. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then we have the cop that was killed by the little child, and then she acts like, oh, everything's okay. Let me just take you back to your, wherever you came from. Like, <laughs> just acts absolutely normal about it. Like, if that was me, I'd be freaking out. <laughs> Segment 2. Exclusive Interviews. Justin McConnell Writer, Director Life Changer. I know love exists. Hey, good morning. I'm Detective Ranson. Mind telling me where you were? First interview in our exclusive interview segment is a conversation with writer-director Justin McConnell. His upcoming horror thriller is titled Life Changer, and here is the synopsis. A murderous shapeshifter sets out on a blood-soaked mission to make things right with the woman he loves. This upcoming film is revolutionary. I have never seen or heard of a concept such as this, a murderous shapeshifter. And in our conversational interview, we will delve into the narrative, the production behind this film, as well as what if scenarios, as comical as it may be, it's interesting. What if a life extraterrestrial life organism is here on Earth? and committing these atrocities as depicted in Life Changer. Or perhaps there is an unknown species that humans have not discovered yet. Is this organism committing these atrocities based on survival or has it adapted to the lifestyle of humanity with its warmongering tendencies? In any event, Life Changer soon to release on video on demand do check it out we will be providing all the necessary information on where you could find life changer as well as a bio and trailer for this upcoming horror thriller without further ado here is my interview with justin mcconnell Once again, thank you for your time and for your, this interview, speaking about your career, filmmaking, and of course, your upcoming film, The Life Changer. Uh, thanks for having me on. 
You're welcome. To kick off the interview, please do provide an origin story, a little bit about yourself and how you got your start in filmmaking, especially uh, with special attention towards the horror thriller genre. Sure. Uh, it's a somewhat long story, so I'll try and keep it brief. But uh, <laughs> from, from a very young age, I was very into horror. Uh, I think the first real exposure I had to it, beyond like Mr. Boogity on the Wonderful World, Wonderful World Disney and My Pet Monster and all the stuff that, you know, sort of rode the line as children's stuff, but had a little bit of the horror element to it, would have been the Monster Squad. So okay. uh, I still remember walking into a video store and seeing it on the top shelf with the new releases when I was like, I don't know, this would have been the late 80s, so I would have been like seven or eight, uh, and pointing at it, at it and going, I want to rent that, and then my dad renting it, and that kind of opened up the world. And then over time, I used to get sick a lot when I was really young, so my dad would rent like Alien, Predator, and uh, you know the stuff he thought I should see, and then be like, don't tell your mom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and like Argento's uh, Phenomenon, which was called Creepers on Home Video, which I probably saw at the age of 12, and that fucked me up nicely, but in a, in a good way. Uh, and then probably around the, sorry, give me one second, uh, probably around the age of, uh, 15, I, uh, decided, I figured out that I wanted to make movies, uh, for a living. So I started making little short documentaries for class projects and, um, shooting my own little short films. And I shot my first feature when I was in high school, uh, just, you know, with a handy cam that I saved up a bunch of money to buy. Um, and then I left Halliburton, which is a small town I grew up in where I couldn't be a filmmaker. And I moved to Toronto to try and pursue a career in film and video. Uh, so I started out doing TV commercials and music videos. And there's a lot to that story, but I'm not going to bore you with it. Um, <laughs> until eventually I started self-financing for the first feature I self-financed, uh, when I was in Toronto was a documentary called working class Rockstar. And then from there, you know, Life Change is my sixth feature film, technically, if you include the one in high school. And I've done a bunch of shorts and a whole bunch of music videos. So um, I kind of just focused and uh, worked and made money running a post-production company and uh, doing work for other people and then reinvesting that money into the films that I'd make, borrowing little bits here and there. But um ultimately trying to do it all kind of myself. And then Life Changer is the first opportunity I've had to work on a movie where other people were footing a sizable enough bill that I was able to put enough of what was in my head on the screen uh, compared to, say, the past, where it would be like, well, let's see what um, what compromises we can make in order to pull this off for like 20 grand or whatever it happens to be. And so this one, I had a little bit more flexibility and freedom to pull off what I was hoping to do your origin story does resonate uh, across the board. I've heard so many guests on this podcast uh, follow the same path, such as the one you described in which they're influenced at a young age, uh, watching films, picking up a camcorder or using a VCR to, to do editing. And it just flourishes from there. It's amazing. There's a certain thing with the, the generation of filmmakers I'm in where we were exposed for the first time as we were coming together in our formative years with things like things like bonus features and HBO first look documentaries and like stuff that really showed the filmmaking process a lot more than past generations. So um, beyond, you know, all of the, you know, the horror boom in the eighties and nineties uh, and the practical effects boom and all those like truly memorable horror movies that came out then, 
beyond that, there was also this sort of push to remove the mystique from the filmmaking process and sort of show the nuts and bolts of it. And in the early 90s, there was the independent filmmaker push where, you know, these filmmakers would be nobodies, you know, the Kevin Smiths or whatever, who uh, go to Sundance and then end up with these rock star-like careers. So you you get that idea in your head and you pursue an ideal of that. And then by the time we got old enough to <laughs> to hit the actual industry, everything had changed. So right. it, it's a it's a it's it's an interesting sort of path that I think a lot of the same. It's a lot of people my age took the same sort of similar path into film. I mean, obviously, there's people that are born into it to some extent because of who they are and where they were raised and who their parents are and you know how much money their parents have and all that sort of thing. Um, but otherwise, it's it's kind of stories like mine, and and I mean others, but the the common horror filmmaker story is pretty similar to what I've got from what I've just said anyway. Right, right, and 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 on, to touch on that also, it's it's all about the 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 grind and what you had mentioned also. Um, doing post-production work taking that money allocating it into your own projects uh rinse mm -hmm. wash and repeat and and keep at it because just as you had mentioned there's this uh pedestal that's uh the regular average viewer uh member of the audience would think oh they're director they live in a mansion in beverly hills and it's not like yeah. that there's a lot of work to, that gets involved into doing that Yeah, exactly. It, it, for a lot of independent filmmakers, it's not that at all. Um, you just scrounge together pennies until somebody gives you an opportunity. Uh, and, and I mean, I, it, it is a somewhat privileged position at times, um, simply because there are rewards that come with the job. Once you actually make movies, people want to see you get to go to film festivals and travel the world and all that sort of thing, which is great. Uh, but even then you're not, it's not like those festivals are paying for you to go a lot of the time, right? You, you, you sort of have to, they might offer you a hotel room or they might offer you free food or whatever it is, but you know, you, chances are you're covering your plane ticket. Uh, you know, it, it's not, um, there's definitely a perception versus reality thing on the indie level. And I, I, I'm far enough down the ladder still that I, uh, I, I get a little bit of notoriety, but it doesn't necessarily translate to a very comfortable life. Uh, it, whatever comfort I have comes from the uh, the client work I do and the the grind. So yeah, that makes makes total sense. Okay. And one aspect that I find that it's a, it's a handicap, but it's a good handicap in a way is, uh, and you had mentioned it, the budget for the film. If you could create a film on a low t low scale budget, and once you have another project in the works and you have investors that are shelling out 10, 20,000 to create your projects, you more or less have an idea on how to allocate those funds properly to create a great visual narrative. Yes. Uh, to some extent. I mean, if, if you spend your entire career having to cut corners, then that's the way your, your mindset you're going to, you're going to be in. Right. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the point where you, you reach a larger plateau That mindset's really helpful to save money, but it also can limit your creativity somewhat in, in that you, you don't really know that you can ask for certain things. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's really sort of a, yeah, it's a bit of a catch 22. I mean, there are filmmakers that start out with big films, like for whatever reason they, you know, they get, they fall in or, or they made an indie film and then their second film is like a $150 million blockbuster or something. And I couldn't, I, I, I don't know right now. I can't fathom that giant jump. Uh, because it's almost like you go from a really hands-on approach to a, you've got this massive team you're making decisions for, but you're far less hands-on and you really don't know how deep the well goes in terms of spending. So 
I could I could imagine there there's a big disconnect there. That's like I I keep mentioning it while well, I mentioned the ladder, like the career as a ladder. That's almost like taking an elevator up the ladder instead of climbing it rung to rung and sort of like gaining your chops and getting there uh, bit by bit by bit. But um, I, I definitely I would definitely say that it, it's both a blessing and a curse because um, you have to adapt as the budgets go up. You sort of have to adapt uh to what that means and and let go of control over things that because you didn't have any budget before you were doing five or six departments so you're on set trying to like now you've got five or six people doing those departments and you keep trying not to step on their toes because you were used to doing it all yourself and it's a learning process Mm -hmm. interesting interesting perspective and speaking about adapting uh, that brings us to Life Changer and watching the film. Uh, one of the things that jumps out, uh, the, one of the, one of the obvious messages that jumps out is adapting and surviving. I find this to be quite unique. I haven't seen a film, uh, like this before. Um, how did this idea come about, uh, this unique serial killer? <clears throat> well, um, initially I was just trying in 2014, I was trying to come up with an idea I could do for very, very, very little money because, um, I'd been trying for a few years to get a couple larger projects financed, one called the eternal another called tripped. Uh, and I, I'd had a bunch of scripts that were written that I've been taking meetings on, uh, and got really close to multi-million dollar budgets a couple times before the recession hit in 2009. And, uh, and I just kept grinding and trying to get these movies made, taking meeting after meeting after meeting. But I realized that my last narrative feature film at that point was uh, this thing called The Collapsed, which was put out by a lot of really good companies, uh, Anchor Bay uh, in a bunch of territories, Lionsgate in the UK, like 12 or 13 other territories. So it was released really well. But the movie itself, um, I wrote too quickly. I made it for like $40,000 up front. Uh, and it just happened to be lucky enough, I guess, to compete on a level with a lot of bigger budget movies. So... I guess my the, the movie that most people saw as my debut feature, um, though technically it wasn't. It was uh, it was it was I thought it was solid personally, but you know looking back, it's uh, it wasn't that particularly well received. You know, it was like a fifty fifty movie where fifty percent of people liked it and fifty percent didn't. It didn't set the world on fire. So I go into all these meetings, and it's not like I had a really good like solid festival hit behind me to be able to say what well, to leverage that to get the net, these bigger movies made. So I was thinking in 2014, how do I like get to that position? And I figured I'm going to have to just take my time and make another super low budget film with whatever money I can scrounge together. So I was trying to come up with an idea like that. And then one day I was on a bus and I thought to my, uh, and I had this idea that was like, what if I saw myself out in public, which of course is uh, Denise Villeneuve's enemy, but the, uh, the idea for life changer kind of slowly organically grew out of that. Uh, And I was also in a very, sort of the down state, uh, very existential, very like thinking internally um, just about my place in life and all that sort of thing. And that part of that stemmed out of a, the death of a very close friend and writing partner a couple of years earlier and just how stuck I was trying to get the next thing going. And I, uh, that the tone kind of came from that. So I ended up uh, gradually just writing the first draft of it in the, the end of 2014. And then over time, between 2014 and when we shot in 2017, the script was revised a bunch as we uh, shopped for budget because we, um, 
that idea to make it for next to nothing changed when my producer, Abby Federigree, came on board a couple months later. And uh, we, we decided, well, let's get it financed. Even, even if it's not a massive amount of money, let's at least get enough budget to do this properly. Mm-hmm. So it took us until the beginning of 2017 to put that money together. Um, and over that time is where the story kind of grew. And it, it it's hard for me to say, oh, it came from this, this, and this. It's more like it came kind of organically, but it's informed by a lifetime of watching movies like it. Or um, even though there's not that many like it, but like there's obviously there's seeds of like invasion of the body snatchers and the hidden and the first power fallen, uh, the borrower, heaven can wait. Even like there's specific, there's stuff that I'm sure inform it, but not specifically. It was more like I, I've seen those films and I'm sure they were working in my subconscious as I was writing. Mm. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned the first power. Uh, that is a classic, in my opinion. Lou Diamond Phillips. I, I watched that mm-hmm. uh, uh, when I was young in the movie theater. So I, it didn't yeah. come to me until you mentioned it right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not one that a lot of people um, have either seen or. Uh, but if they did, uh, it, they probably have the same opinion you do. It's it's a really fun. Uh, demon body jumping film that uh, I guess nobody talks about as much as the hidden or the thing or invasion of the body snatchers, but it's it's definitely worth seeking out. Yeah, it's one of those hidden gems. Uh, well, th- well, thank yeah. you for the backstory for for Life Changer. Uh, it's it's interesting to see the how the, the evolution of idea comes about, and especially when it does involve uh, the, the filmmaking process, getting an idea and 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 going through personal issues and them. In, in situations like those is when the ideas is planted like a seed and it just sprouts from there and now you have a, a very great, unique, <laughs> in my opinion, uh, visual narrative here. Thank you. Also, uh, I'm one f- that I, I'm very astute with uh symbolism in in horror films whether it be the checkerboard mm-hmm. pattern on the floor or the pillars i always pay attention to stuff like that one thing that really stands out for me for life changer is the butterfly on the poster which has yeah. many multi levels of of significance uh what was your opinion on that in in that process well i mean the uh, without giving too much away the mm-hmm. the character is always going through changes and whether or not you consider that a chrysalis or not he's actually draining life force from people and turning into a completely new thing just like a you know a caterpillar will turn into a butterfly so on a very base level there there's that sort of just obvious symbol symbolism of here's another creature in nature that transforms into something else i won't give away anything about the ending but that that's more overt as the film goes on um but that being said, I, I worked the butterfly symbolism into the movie in a lot of really subtle ways. Um, some stuff that got cut out, like we, I spent uh, money to buy stock footage of like monarch butterflies being hatched, and the, the beginning scenes, what she's watching on TV when she's smoking the joint, is that like a nature show? But I ended up cutting that out because it just seems so heavy-handed. <laughs> right. that, but throughout the movie, even in the production design, like uh, Laura's got uh, pin butterflies in a frame on her wall. The bar they're in throughout the movie is called The Monarch, which mm-hmm. um, we didn't necessarily choose the bar because it was called The Monarch. It was the best one we could shoot in for the price, but it just kind of fit so well that it was like, okay, I better get a shot of the sign. Um, there's constantly shots of insects and, uh, and, and and these lower life forms that are, are known for um, becoming, you know, they, they start in a larval state and then they end up in their final state. 
So that symbolism is and uh, metaphors definitely work through the movie in subtle ways um, to build towards something. And I'm not going to say that in the interview because people need to see the film, but um, there, it's definitely there the concept the concept of transformation of becoming the real you of becoming you know the the thing you're meant to be. Uh, also on a moral story level with, with the path the character takes and the guilt he feels. Uh, and, and just like the point of the story, a lot of that kind of is symbolized by the butterfly. Um, but uh, that has led to some people watching the movie and going, well, why isn't there wings? Why doesn't he have wings? <laughs> it's like, okay, all right. Um, I don't know. Nobody in Silence of the Lambs had wings. You know, the Thomas Harris book, right, is a, is a butterfly too. And it's, mm-hmm. it's um, it's not like somebody physically has wings in the, in that, but, uh, anyway, I digress. <laughs> I, 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 there's, there's other, there's other symbolism for the movie too. And, and I mean, mm-hmm. if you really think about kind of the metaphor of the story, the idea that, you know, you in a bad relationship, you change yourself to fit with the need or what you believe that your partner wants from you. And then if you keep doing that in your entire life, you never really live your life. You end up, um, you know, missing everything because you were trying to be someone else the whole time. And instead you could have been yourself. Um, and maybe you wouldn't have caused as much damage like right. that, that, that metaphor at the heart of it. Right. That is also true. And, and that also applies for the, the, the worker bee mentality, the nine to five, uh, you you wake up in the morning, yep. you go to work and you have this mentality of how you're supposed to be. But then, in most cases, you have a dream that you want to fulfill, let's say a, a singer songwriter, and that's also bugging you. Where in your life do you see that shift? It also applies to that concept as well. Yes, yeah, for sure. It, it's it's um, the idea that so many of us live in like a pupa state, and uh, we're we're still the caterpillar, and and um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different interpretations you could you could take away from it. Uh, and I, I've definitely had people approach me with a lot and it, a lot of it fits uh, and uh, tracks. And I, even, whether it was intentional by me or not, it, ultimately um, it, I'm glad that people can bring their own meaning to the story. Uh, that's uh, to me, that's a sign of something that works. Uh, maybe not for everybody, but definitely works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that That's something, as I mentioned, I'm astute to these little uh, details, especially when it has to do with symbolism. It conveys a message between, it bridges the gap actually between the, the creator, the artist and the viewer. And they could just dissect it in every psychological level. But at the end of the day, it's it's a great form of entertainment. It is horror. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It is, and, and but horror is such a massive umbrella, and I think if more people accepted the idea that horror can be a proxy for any kind of story, mm-hmm. um, you know, as long as you're entertaining the audience to some degree, um, even if you're not, even if you're just making the audience incredibly uncomfortable, <laughs> for whatever reason your story does that, uh, horror is a catch-all for a lot of different stories. Like it's a, it's a great shorthand to be able to get a lot of great ideas out um, in a way that where the audience will accept it because you're already dealing with the supernatural or uh, something outside the normal realm of human, human experience. You can, you can really get to the heart of human experience by sort of exaggerating or putting people in the idea of the absurd 
and and, and it's almost like their guard goes down because if you if you you're too overt about something in a drama, people will call cry foul and say it's you know oh, that's a heavy-handed or obvious approach to this idea. But if you put it in a horror film and, and it's almost delivered through metaphor and people are able to think about it and think about what's below the surface, then I think you end up with a, a more interesting and acceptable way of getting the same sort of idea across. Whether or not, you know, they both work, both approaches work, but I, I think horror, especially, I mean, throughout history, horror has done that. Uh, and there's been this sort of push lately by a, a very vocal, but maybe, I don't know if they're in the minor, vocal minority, but like people who approach horror and say, well, it's about, it's where are the jump scares and where, where's the, the, it's horror doesn't have to be this tiny little narrow focused uh, genre. It's, it's, it's much more all encompassing than that. Oh yeah. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And yeah, it's, it's a great platform for a lot of, uh, to tackle a lot of social political issues, uh, either uh, bluntly or subconsciously. Uh, with, with Life Changer, one aspect that is a highlight for me is the story itself. In particular, the character arc. I enjoy a film, regardless of genre, when the character arc is well put together. And here you have crafted a an antagonist slash protagonist where the audiences really want to know what's going to happen with this individual. Is he going to survive? Is he going to uh, be in peril? How important was it for you to really craft something that audiences can adapt? I I thought it was the most important thing. I, I, at the heart of this movie, it's it's a character study. It's not it's not you know a detective is trying to find or a, a, a protagonist is trying to find this creature that could be anybody. And uh, the the arc would be you know there, there's a different way this story could have been told from the mm-hmm. perspective of like somebody trying to hunt through. But in in making it uh, entirely like every single scene is through the perspective of Drew. It's it's the, there's never a scene in the movie where Drew is not in the scene. So uh, to have it from the POV of that character, you know, to, it's almost like a Henry Portrait of Zero Killer thing, or it, where you you're with what is essentially the villain, and and I, I, through the noirish voiceover we did, and the you know, the, the way we told the story, I really wanted people not necessarily to empathize with him because what he's doing is uh, evil is the wrong word, but he's causing a lot of damage and pain. And uh, he may not be totally aware of how much because he's, he's broken in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, at least to be able to understand where this, this, this thing, where this person, this, whatever he is, is coming from, and follow him on a journey where, where he starts in one place and by the end of it uh, is changed, even subtly changed, but changed enough that, um, I mean, literally changed because throughout the movie, he, he takes the form of multiple different people um, and then it gets to a certain point at the end, but changed uh, internally as a, as a being, like uh, um, has learned something or at least, at least... <laughs> It, whatever I, again I, I'm just I don't want to give away the ending but right, right, um, of course. <laughs> has at least has at least grown to some extent um, whether it's for good or bad has has a lesson has been learned um, uh, so there's there's this sort of clean story uh, and I, I forget who quoted this it might have been Jason Bloom or somebody like that but the idea that if you make it like a good horror film or maybe not a good horror film but a good 
the idea behind a good genre film is if you remove the genre from it, it's still a good story. Uh, and, and that was kind of what we were trying to do. Um, you could take away all the fantastical elements and at its heart, it would still be a pretty good relationship drama. Um, I think that that's kind of, I mean, obviously the horror elements heightened it all, but I think that's kind of what I was going for. Mm. And, and once again, there, there are films that have touched on this topic as well, in which the antagonist is the core character and audiences follow yeah. his or her journey. Universal horror movies for, is, are like the, almost the origins of cinematic horror were about following the villain. Mm-hmm. Even as far back as Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, it, 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 it was uh, the audience following this person doing or this thing doing, this misunderstood thing at times doing evil things. Uh, but what, you know, trying not to. It, it, that's sort of the, the angle I took with this. Ah, oh, wow, I see. Uh, I didn't see it from the Universal Monsters point of view uh, either. With, with, with that said, you stated that you could have taken this in a different level. This looks like it could parallel life. You mean it, it could exist in the world we have or... Oh, absolutely. Uh, especially with all the, the, the news nowadays, we just landed a probe on Mars and so on and so forth. There's always that little yeah. seed right there that, hmm, what if? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe this exists. I mean, not exactly, but there's, I'm, I'm not going to be naive enough to think that we, that we know everything about the world. There, mm-hmm. there's, there's probably, some basis in the folklore that's existed over the years to some truth. There's always a seed of truth to every legend. And what that is, is probably misunderstood by the person telling the legend initially. But um, I, I do think that, you know, it's a think that we, we live in a world where there's no magic is really depressing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, by magic though, I mean like there's probably something natural in nature that has, has created things, uh, stuff that, does exist out there or did exist out there that would be considered fantastical um, just because we haven't discovered them. I mean, you think about the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. There are trenches in the ocean where we, and we have no idea what species exist down there. We have no clue. We, you know, we, there, we haven't dove that deep. So it's, um, and every once in a while something comes up and people are like, Oh, what the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are fish out there and, and ocean life out there that, that look like they're out of, you know, straight out of Lovecraft. And it's, it's, it, I, I think, and spa- then you got the question of space, like the idea that we're the only intelligent life or we're the only planet able, able to sustain life is absurd to me. It, there, it's, it's, it's endless. It's a vast, endless universe. There's so much possibility out there. So the concept uh, that this could exist in real life, absolutely, um, it could exist in our world. Uh, we just don't know, or we don't see it, or whatever else. Or, uh, but that being said, um, you know, I, I, I think the overtly you take everything with a grain of salt until you're you're proven otherwise. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm open to it. I'm open to the concept that there are things out there that we just don't see. We just don't know exist uh, until we do. <laughs> and then uh then things change. 
once once again with the with the with the antagonist slash protagonist in Life Changer, uh, I would see and from, from while watching the film from my perspective, hmm, if someone was visiting Earth or this creature somehow a freak of nature would be on Earth, that is what his day to day life would be. It, it wouldn't be some absurd sci fi effect. It's just a, a creature trying to survive, trying to adapt, and really in conflict with itself uh, on its basis for survival because basically that's what it is trying to survive mm-hmm. i mean uh, i, I kind of look at the survival instinct as if you put two people in a room and you put a knife in the middle of the room and you say only one person is walking out of here alive or you're both going to starve to death somebody's going to get stabbed and someone's going to walk out that's mm-hmm. our nature as human beings right so to apply human nature to a creature they'd have a very similar nature and i think Something like Drew that was born human, uh, ultimately, and or born looking human, and uh, has lived in human society for as long as he has, and has the memories of dozens of people in his head all fighting for control, is going to have some pretty messed up morality, but he's going to have a sense of morality and a sense of right and wrong. It's just very twisted because of that survival instinct, and, uh, and who says everybody he's absorbed were good people. Mm. And, uh, it, you know, he's going to have the biases and the, and the hatred and the things that those people may have had in their own lives are going to be absorbed right with everything else. And it, it, it leads to a very, uh, a very dangerous, but, but a very sick character. And, um, and I, yeah, I think that absolutely, um, in terms of if they existed, if Drew, if something like Drew existed, he might not have the exact same personality as Drew, but there'd definitely be a war on the inside between what is right and what is wrong and what I can do and what I don't, not just to avoid detection, but also just to try and do, try not to be evil. I, I, I think maybe some somebody else might have leaned into the evil, but they'd probably get caught faster. <laughs> right, right. That's precisely. Water, yeah. That's one thing. Yeah. A part of survival: stay low key. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, to to close out our interview, a couple of questions. Uh, first one being, I always like to infuse the inspirational part for the, each interview. Uh, what advices do you use, given that your origin story and your rise in, in creating content, finding self-financing your films, what advice do you give others? Not to give up. Uh, I mean, it, it, especially because it looks like a very daunting task and it still looks like a daunting task to me and probably people who make stuff for, you know, fucking Marvel is still a daunting task. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter Jackson get, got screwed over on some of his films when he got bigger. It, it, it never stops being challenging. But the way people make it uh, is to just keep at it and keep their nose to the ground and, and keep learning and, and just um, don't let the business get you down because it will. In a lot of ways, it's a business that it, it destroys careers because people just can't take it anymore. They can't uh, they can't keep working and keep trying um, because it gets very very stressful and very like you you end up at the point sometimes where you question why you're even trying or why you're doing this when you can have this simple life because uh, it, it does it absorbs a lot of hours of your time and it, it takes it takes endless amounts of work and and like just constant focus to actually try and make anything get anything off the ground and that can sometimes be sac- like be at the sacrifice of other things like relationships and 
uh, seeing your friends and like, uh, I feel really bad right now because there's certain friends I haven't really talked to since this whole like festival run started and the post ended on this movie because I've just been traveling around and like my closest friends, I suppose I, I still, but regardless, you, you end up, you end up in an alienated place at times, especially when you're it, like dead in the middle of working on something larger or something that's all consuming. Um, it can be a really stressful uh, dream to pursue, but if it's in, if it's in your soul, if it's like, if this is the thing you have to do, if this is what you really want to do, you'll know it early enough. You should know it early enough. Um, I think that if it's the only thing you can do, then just put your, your nose to the ground, just like push forward, learn as much as you can, you know, talk to people, get to know like-minded individuals, get to know your your filmmaker colleagues, because they are, they're like your extended family, especially when you start traveling to festivals and stuff, you know, don't, don't close yourself off the idea of meeting new people all the time. Cause you never know, you never know who's either going to be able to help or if not help, at least be a support system or people you can talk to people. You can bounce ideas off of. I would just be as open to the idea that success is coming while realizing that success is different for every single person. So it's, it's, it's just be happy with your small victories and keep pushing forward because that it's that sort of Joseph, that Conrad thing of the journey is better than the destination and if I looked back right now, like I, 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 <laughs> I get nervous flying now because I fly so much and it's not so much. I'm afraid of flying. It, it's the idea that like, you know, I, I always have this thought in the back of my mind if this plane dropped in the ocean <laughs> and I was looking back as I was dropping into the ocean and about to die, would I look at my life and think I've accomplished what I wanted and that, you know, did, did I enjoy the path and what are were my memories? And I can honestly say I've got, a lifetimes of memories over the past, you know, 15 years, trying to 20 years, trying to get this to happen. Like um, enjoy the little moments because they pass by and they're not coming back again. So the idea is that enjoy the journey. Doesn't matter how long it takes you. Some of the biggest directors didn't start really get their career started until their late forties or fifties or sixties. Even um, just, just work and try and look for support and just, just get smart about it. Do the, like I said, learn as much as you can, do the research, learn the actual business side of things, because especially now there's too many filmmakers fighting for the same audience and the people that rise to the top have a pretty good understanding of how to get to the top, like how to cut through all the noise. Right. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and I think, I think you'll do all right. Um, obviously talent has a lot to do with it, but you can always improve. Um, simply by continuing to work and make things and learn things. So it's, I've got a long way to go myself and I know that the journey is going to be tough and, uh, but I'm, I can't stop. So if that's you, if that's how you feel, don't stop, just keep pushing forward. Absolutely. Especially you mentioned it many times, the business aspect uh, those thinking, oh, I'm just going to create a film. Uh, it's it's art. Yeah, it's art. But at the same time, it's also mm -hmm. a product that you have to shop. You have to put it in front of the audiences. Uh, if you're looking for investors, there's that component or crowdfunding is, is multi-leveled uh, aspects when it comes yeah. to bridging film, art, and being an entrepreneur, basically. Mm -hmm. You have to know who your audience is uh, probably before you start shooting. 
you can make films just for yourself if you want to, but if it has any significant amount of budget to it or you've got partners on it, you're not going to be able to make another one if that movie crashes and burns and dies and, you know, nobody sees it. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're making movies on next to no money, um, you, you always should be making movies from the heart anyway and, and movies that matter to you because anyone can make someone else's movie or look at a movie and go, hey, that's, uh, that's something I've... I've I, that's really popular right now, so I'm going to do one of those. Right. That's not. That's that's just like jumping on a bandwagon or a trend. And by the time your version of that is done, if the trend might be over, right. uh, I'd say the smarter move is just to make the movies and the stories that mean something to you. Um, try and get those made. I, if you have to tweak your story to make it more marketable, that's one thing. But um, yeah, you definitely you got to make work you're going to be happy about down the line because you may not get to make another one. <laughs> that's, that is, I, I'd say that's it. Yep, that's lesson one hundred one. <laughs> and uh, yeah. to 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 conclude the interview, it's an open platform. Please plug in any information that you care to share uh, with Life Changer. Okay. Anything that you have working on and social media handles, if you have them. Sure. So my company website is unstableground.net. I'm on most social media i'm on twitter instagram facebook and linkedin for some reason um (laughs) you can find me on there just by searching my name uh or unstable ground um you should be able to find it uh life changers coming out across north america on january 1st on vod and we'll be out on blu-ray and dvd a few months later we haven't announced that date yet uh it's coming out in the uk in february i believe across uh across the uk and there's some other territories too which i won't talk about yet um if you want to see it please watch it um please pay for it but you know what am i going to say to that <laughs> but, uh, um in any case uh i've got a up we're currently in post on a documentary series uh called clapboard jungle surviving the independent film business which i've been shooting since 2014 i've done like 120 interviews uh with people like um Guillermo del toro i got one of george romero's final interviews but then people in all levels of the industry, it's meant to be a survival guide, uh, a film school in a box kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that'll be coming out sometime in 2019 um, after all, after a long wait. Uh, and uh, we're supposed to go to camera on a couple other movies, which I talked about in other interviews, but we'll, I'll talk about more as we're getting closer to camera. Um, and we've just had our third anthology release come out called Blood, Sweat and Terrors, which is an action horror anthology you put out with us in Room Org. It's available across North America right now. Um, yeah, that's that's about it. Oh, it's Christmas time, right? So watch our short film, Do You See What I See, which is called It's a Christmas horror. Uh-huh. Just in time for the holidays. <laughs> okay. Well, looking forward to your upcoming projects and uh, Life Changer. It, it is a life changer. Good material there. I, I do enjoy a good character arc. Uh, thank you for your time and all, all the best to you. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. A Christmas Horror Story Roundtable Part 2. Here is the second part of the roundtable discussion we participated in at Everything Horror Podcast. Once again, the topic of this discussion is the horror anthology specifically holiday horror anthology a christmas horror story once again this is the second part of this one hour long roundtable discussion 
the man that owned the uh, the plot of the land where the Christmas tree came from, where he dealed with the Changeling all the time on top of, uh, you know, trying to say, like, this isn't your son anymore. I mean, I guess if somebody were to call me and tell me, like, hey, uh, that ain't your boy, I think in this case I would be like, you know what? I think you're right. Because, you know, <laughs> I think I've seen enough horror movies to know. And plus, if it is my kid, which um, I'm not quite sure how old the boy was, is supposed to really be. But let's just say he's like four years old, just to say, maybe five. I mean, I think within the five year span so far of your kid, I mean, Stacy. Stacy could probably help me with this too, because Stacy has a couple children of her own. But I mean, like, so Stacy, if how, how did you feel about that? Like, so you know, you got the family that went into the forest to get the tree, come back, and their son is completely different. Would you like? Would you owning uh, having kids? Not trying to say owning kids, but you know, having kids, but. Um, you know, if this, if somebody were to call you and say, Hey, one of your daughters is not actually your daughter right now. Would you actually believe that? Um, not until, well, you know, she started like, if I see that she's showing different, um, behavior, then yes, absolutely. Um, but unless I see like that different behavior, I'm not just going to believe some, you know, all Crete calling me on the phone. Hey, just so you know, your kid is, you know, I'm like, dude, who are you? Get off my line, please. <laughs> but as far as the movie goes, and I think what happened here is that in order for there to be a story, it had to play out the way it did. Like, I mean, if they realized right when picking up the tree or whatever, say, for instance, that you know, the boy was not himself, there wouldn't be much of a story. And, you know, me and Kim, we've talked about that before in movies about how, you know, people do silly things. And then you have to go into that hole. Well, like if they didn't do this, then there wouldn't be much of a film. There wouldn't be much of a story. The same thing as when, you know, say like uh, in, in a lot of horror movies where the victim does that silly thing like, okay, she runs up the stairs, she traps herself in the closet or something like that, you know? Well, if she didn't do that, then there wouldn't be this whole chase scene and stuff like that. So I think that's what happened there. Yeah, I agree with that. It's really difficult to tell the story, especially in this case, that something, everything seems out of whack and then make it a good story. It's it's tricky as a writer to really just, you have to stay in the cliche, and then you don't have to stay in the cliche in order to convey the story. It's it's a tricky road to, to, to really send that message out. But I agree on both counts. If things wouldn't happen, we wouldn't have the story. And on the other hand, things were just too silly for it to happen anyway. Well, yeah, because remember, as annoying as cliches are, mm-hmm. without those cliches, you know, the movie would end in the first 10 minutes, 10, right. 20 minutes. 
Right. You know? So the, there's no story. Right. So, you know, we sit up here and we get mad at movies like, just say, for instance, Scream. I know what you did. I said, it's like, why did you just do that? You idiot. You, <laughs> you know, if, if, you know, you need those cliches for the story to survive a good amount of life. Right, right. And one thing that does work in this case is the acting, especially for me, uh, Oninuke Adieli. Uh, she was great as the mom. I, I found her act, and, and also uh, her counterpart, the, the father. But she, since she, the bulk of the film was her from beginning to end, I think she did a great job. And that's what conveys the story. The story could be as iffy like this. But if the acting is spot on, you just overlook everything else and say, okay, she's convincing. I want to see what happens to her. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, Tristan? I think she did a great job playing as the mother. The father, on my part, I think could have done a better job acting. But I think all in all with the story, I think it was very well and everybody did a great job acting. Even the little boy. Well, let me ask you this, Tristan. Uh, elaborate a little bit more. What what part of the father made you kind of start stop believing uh, believing in his character? Like, what part was it? It was the part where you know he was he investigated right in the beginning of the movie where he investigated like the killings at that school. And then we went into his story with his family. And then, like, his expressions, like his, when they were looking for the little boy in the woods, the mother seemed a little bit more mm -hmm. scared mm -hmm. that the son was a little bit, like, disappeared. Mm -hmm. Like, more scared. Right. He was like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. You know, like, we'll find him. Like, he shouldn't have gone far. It's okay. Or maybe, well, maybe the father was acting like that just to kind of, you know, comfort his wife because, you know, you don't want two people freaking out at the same time. But because, you know, it's kind of like me with Tessa. Like, if she's upset and I'm trying to not show me being upset. I need that we try to stay calmed and try to calm her down too, because you know it's like saying it's okay. We'll find him because he was just here. Maybe he just just like a few feet away, like you know something like that, just to kind of calm him down. But otherwise, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, Ken, did you have at any point in time or any point in time in the film yourself that you've kind of felt? Maybe somebody's acting was a little off. Well, in in this story in particular, uh, the actor that plays the the father, Adrian Holmes, the part that he finds his son in the tree, or well, it wasn't actually his son. He that reaction was not scary at all. I mean, he was supposed to act like he's petrified because something touched his arm through a hole in the tree. I would freak out. Oh my God, wait, you know, but him, his, it was kind of like, uh, and then when the, the, the son attacks him with the fork, it's like, okay, that 
yeah, need to polish up a bit on that right there. And those those are just two examples that it was kind of iffy, and that's why I put uh, Anunuki uh, uh, Adiyeli as being the star of this showcase here. Her her acting was more convincing, especially at the end when she, of course, brings the child to the for- back to the forest. She was crying. She wanted her child. It felt authentic. Agreed. And out of curiosity, Tristan, what really stuck out to you as a sore thumb uh, for the dad? I, I gave two examples. Were there anything that really stuck out? Like, damn, this guy, his acting is kind of iffy. <laughs> Besides what you just pointed out, Ken, um, I really agree what you said. Like, he should have reacted a lot better when his hand was touched near the tree. And I know we were talking earlier about the mother, but also it just brought back when I, I just watched it like two weeks ago on Shudder. And when the mother shot the that creepy guy that owns the plantation that has the chainlings in it, she didn't really react. She really was like, Oh, I just shot somebody. Now, what am I supposed to do? Like, (laughs) (laughs) like she's standing there. She's talking to the changeling, but also ignoring that she just shot someone Mm. and killed them. Mm. Yeah, I I I think that instance was more of shock. So I was like, okay, she shot him. It didn't register that she did. She's in shock. She's more focused on her child and everything hasn't set in yet. That That's kind of what I got. How about the school there? Uh, um, <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Wow. Go on, Ken. Go on. <laughs> it was an interesting story. I mean, I, it's interesting. It just felt too familiar to me. <laughs> Okay, what made it so familiar to you? Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen Veronica on... Is it Veronica? Oh, I think it's Veronica on Netflix. Right away, like, okay, here it goes. One of those found footage, uh, semi-documentary type films. Uh, a couple of... Uh, well, a few curious kids go to investigate a haunting or murder and blah, blah, blah. We all know, we've seen this before. And the only difference here, what basically there is no difference, is is it's too, it's too, it's too much of a template for me. And yeah, it just reminded me of Veronica so much. <laughs> well, real quick, Ken, what were your thoughts on Veronica? Did you feel it was overhyped too, just like me? No, you know what? I don't think. I think the horror community created the hype. I don't think it was high. I don't see Netflix uh, churning out trailer after trailer like they did with Halloween, like they did with Strangers. I didn't see that. Uh, I didn't see any proper um, advertisings anywhere. I think the horror community saw this and said, oh, wow, wait, this is going to be great. And then the word spread like wildfire. And when everybody watched the film, it wasn't what they expected and started bashing on it. And so. It, it it was good. You never, you never good. saw the article floating around about Veronica is supposedly so scary that people can't even finish it. 
that was a double meaning. They say it was so scary in that it'll dull you to death that you wouldn't end up finishing. There was a, it was double speak. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's why when me and Tessa watched it, we're like, "What the hell?" So we're just like, "Okay, we're gonna post our review of this, and this is how we're gonna title it." And it's it, we, we we titled the article. Uh, something about like done being overhyped with Veronica or something like that. And I pretty much, pretty much were just saying, I guess a lot of people are too pussies or something that can't that find this scary if they even do find it scary to turn it off. So, right. And then I tried to make to do some research of trying to find a real story, which is somewhat in there. But anyway, back on topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean. That ghost story, I mean, you know, it's almost like uh, watching, uh, what's that film? Ghost Encounters. That's the or, one. Yes. That's that the one. Name of, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, instead of doing a TV show, they're doing like a documentary, trying mm-hmm. not to get caught, but vice versa with uh, Ghost Encounters, where they had permission, walked inside, yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, it's, it's just like, okay, we already know what's going to happen here. Somebody's going to get possessed, just knock it off. But what made this possession more interesting is the writing on the wall that they encountered. Which, uh, babe, what, what, what did the uh, students, I will say, when they were in the school, when they weren't supposed to be, when they were filming the documentary for the murderers, what did they find on the wall? I believe it said, unto a child is given... Will be, like, born or something. Another will be born or something, something like to that. that yeah. yeah. So, so Tessa, what did you think of that ghost story? Honestly, I think it was probably, like, my... I wasn't really into that one very much. I mean, I followed it and I understood it. Um, Molly was ended up being possessed by the ghost of Grace, who was an impregnated teenage girl who lost her baby due to abortion by um, nuns. Yes. So it was like um, she was trying to reach through Molly just to make sure that her her child would be reborn through someone else. Yep, which was pretty much killing off Dylan because... Dylan refused to uh, cooperate. He refused to do the deed. Yep. Because he was, he was uh, with Caprice. It was, he's with Caprice. That's his girlfriend, which good boy for being faithful. But in this case, it cost him his life. Yeah, <laughs> with a uh, crucifix to the eyeball. Yep, through the eyeball socket. And then we get poor Ben. Yep, poor Ben, who ends up impregnating Molly, possessed possessed by Grace. Yep. And ends up dead anyways, with his neck neck being snapped. While being levitated against the wall, 
Yeah. And pretty much pretty getting much, rid of him. Yeah, pretty much Grace was like, okay, you did, you did what I wanted. You did the deed. I have no use for you anymore. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Stacey, what did you think of this ghost story? I mean, I, I agree with you guys. I liked it. Uh, like I said, it played out well. So, But you all make very good points. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think your daughter agrees too. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just up here feeding her and she's drinking too fast. Oh, poor baby. <laughs> I always tell I always tell Stacy, yeah, your daughter can be in the podcast. That'd be so funny. That's and what it, I'm trying to tell her too. I mean, <laughs> hey, her the daughter need to put in her two cents too. I mean, exactly. That would yeah. be great, uh, especially when it's something that we don't agree upon. And then uh, Stacy, your daughter, she'll just cool or make a sound. Yeah. That is hilarious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, when me and Lyric are playing video games and, um, you know, you've been seeing the uh, videos and London is in the background on one of them. And I'm just like, tell her, London, tell her. <laughs> But um, before I get into my final thoughts of a Christmas horror story, um, so Ken, I'm surprised you didn't mention this about Krampus. But I mean, Krampus is kind of buff, don't you think? And I mean, he, he's wearing a kilt too. So isn't he like some type of Scottish Krampus going on here? Yeah, that's why I say I, I I like the design of this creature here. It's it's out of the many well the few actually Krampus films that I have seen, especially with the next topic we're going to discuss. I think this one really stands out. Uh, the design, he's all white, looks like a ram, looks like a demon. He got of venom's tongue and pinhead's chains. Uh, it, it feels cool. It looks good. I I know they spent a ton of money on that uh, practical effects right there. A ton of money. That's an awesome looking outfit. And as I said before, with the CGI, it works well because, of course, the CGI touches, you know, makes up touch ups on the costume and, of course, the the blood and the gore. It comes out nice. It comes out really, really, really good. I I I'm impressed of that costume. And I don't throw that compliment out much, but yeah, when it comes to Krampus, that one looks, he looks good. One thing I will say real quick, for those of you that remember the joke, but this is where I'm going to say, man, Krampus' tongue makes you want to (laughs) go, are you going to eat that? <laughs> wow, you remember that joke. Oh gosh. Wow. Wow. Stacy remembers. Yes, yes. Oh wow. Tristan doesn't know about that joke. Tristan does not know about that joke. No, he does not. Uh, uh, well, we got to, uh, Paul, before the podcast began, you shared how you met Tessa. Well, I guess I'll share this story with Tristan. Uh, Tristan, you're a gamer or not pro, but somewhat gamer? Yeah, I'm a somewhat gamer. Uh, you heard of The Last of Us Part 2, correct? Yes. Okay, watch the trailer again. Watch the beginning of the trailer. 
and watch the part where the female antagonist, she's dancing with the other girl. And the other girl, of course, we all know that's the post-apocalypse, that there's no running water, or if it is, it's very few. So the girl that the protagonist is dancing with, she mentions that she doesn't smell good, of course. So she wipes herself all over the protagonist. And you see that in the trailer. So my wife is like, hmm, are you going to eat that? Uh, we all started cracking up because of like, oh shit, it makes sense. Oh, wow. <laughs> now when you watch the trailer again, <laughs> when you watch the trailer again, it's going to make sense like because they become lovers in somewhat. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's not sexy at all. (laughs) (laughs) Krampus, I really liked him. I agree with Ken. It was very well made. The costume, the CGI, everything was great. But it also reminded me, I don't know if anybody else seen the TV show, but Grimm. No, I never seen um, that. Used to come on. Uh, Fox or whatever and um, they had a holiday special where Krampus was the monster in the TV show and it kind of resembled what happened with the story behind Krampus, how he became to be and how he possessed the body of people that were very angry and all that and in this TV show it really resembles what happened in this movie. Um, guy gets mad, gets possessed by Krampus, and starts stealing, like kidnapping and abusing bad children. And that really stood out to me, and that's really where it got me with that story. Hmm, and I really, I really enjoyed that story very well. Very well. I'm gonna have, have to see that Grimm. now. I just unfortunately have not gotten a chance to watch it, which I do believe it is on Amazon Prime. I believe right now. I believe now. it's also on Netflix as well. Ah, so we got it in a couple places. So we definitely need to check it out okay. at some point. Um, but not to, but I don't feel like I'm missing anything to talk more about, but. I just want to throw it out there, too, before um, if anybody else has anything else to talk about for a Christmas Horror Story. But my final thought for a Christmas Horror Story is it was well done. The practical effect was spot on. Uh, kind of like what Ken was said I, about the CGI and practical effect. It's pretty much, I, I agree with him 100%. And, I mean... I do agree with Stacy that it's not really my favorite type of anthology for horror, but I mean, it's something new, I guess, at the time, which it came out on October 2nd, 2015. And I mean, for something like this with an anthology where they relied more on practical effects versus CGI, I got to applaud to that real yeah. quick because yeah. normally CGI overtakes every freaking film nowadays. 
where um, I think Ken even mentioned it too about a uh, interview that I recently did or he did do mm-hmm. um, about uh, people who do special effects and stuff where if they don't have the funds for special effects, then what do you expect to do with gore and stuff? Which I'll let Ken take that. But but if I had to really rate this film too, I would definitely recommend watching it just because of the Santa and Krampus fight of what is actually really going on behind that. Even though we did say what is really going on behind that. But if you skipped ahead, like maybe you didn't. But still, I mean, I I just really enjoyed that that concept and. I didn't really see it coming either at the end. Like, I mean, I don't really think I had, there was any indication, especially with the beginning of the film where you see Santa Claus all bloodied up already looking at the door that Krampus goes through and stuff. And then when you finally see everything that leads up of everything that has happened with the Santa and Krampus thing, and even Santa with the zombie elves, and all that stuff, but it's just, I, I don't know. I just really think everything was well done. And that is mm-hmm. my thoughts on the Krampus, hor- uh, Krampus Horror Story. Wow, a Christmas Horror Story. <laughs> yeah, it, it, um, and, and the interview uh, that you were referring to, that's with Shiva Rodriguez. And, uh, this week, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Sui Sinclair, and she worked on the film Dry Blood. Interesting thing. I thought that practical effects was on a decline, being that, of course, shows like Face Off was canceled, and we see more CGI being used in indie film than practical effects. And to my surprise, uh, Sui Sinclair stated the opposite. It's more in demand, but, but, Paul, check this out. You... The same shit that happens to uh, Shiva Rodriguez happens to her. She gets hired for a film, and guess what? No fucking budget for practical effects. How are they supposed to do their job? So I'm thinking, uh, do, do filmmakers think that you can make blood with ketchup and uh, chocolate? No, it, there's a lot that goes into that stuff. Well. Hey, I mean, I guess if it were black and white, Ken, maybe you could get away <laughs> with it. But I mean, otherwise, uh, I guess you could just use um, corn syrup and uh, some food dye. I guess. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But I know it. What with I even looked into the prices of this stuff for for something I wanted to do. And even basic prosthetics that you could get online. I mean, this stuff is high, high end, but it, it's wow. Each piece would cost you, uh, $30. Then you need the glue. Then you need the paint and it adds up. Oh yeah. Everything nowadays adds up. Um, I actually have a friend who is a special effects, uh, uh, lady who designs her own stuff uh does makeup and does bloody stuff like you know um and we actually interviewed her for our show uh last year or this past year i'm trying to remember now i think it was last year actually and um you know it's 
it's really neat to watch her make what she does. And she actually would just made a Krampus mask for this year's, um, what do they call it? Krampus parade around here. I think it was around here or somewhere. And I mean, that mask, I mean, she, she ended up re, uh, redesigning it or something like she redesigned something and the final thing though i mean it's it's beautiful i mean it's like oh my god like this looks really neat almost as a film could use so i would definitely check her out um her stuff is like after midnight effects and i'll post a link to her facebook and stuff so it's people listening want to check out her stuff you are more than welcome to Kristen what I mean do you have anything else to say about a Christmas horror story to me if you've ever seen this and you're a holiday freak like me um I really recommend this for anybody that hasn't seen this or is in love with anthology movies um i really enjoyed it like i agree with paul you know i was not expecting the ending to happen the way it did you know and right then and there that's when it hooked me in and i was like you know i'd watch this again and if anybody out there is listening to this you know i would love for you to watch this and enjoy the thrill that we've watched with it um i agree with uh tristan again it's one of the uh better anthologies i thought it was very well made the stories were really good that that was brief (laughs) (laughs) she's got that's cut to the chase right there (laughs) it was good Um, that's what this actually just had to go use the restroom. Otherwise, I'd probably we would say she would just have started talking. <laughs> uh, so Ken, real quick, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, the, the that's uh, I think the consensus is clear. Uh, this is a good horror Christmas horror film to see, especially from the indie from the indie front. Uh, the acting's superb. I, that really f- caught me off guard. Even I would even say the acting in that that school sc- story horror story. Even though I did not pre- enjoy that one in, in, out of all of them, but I have to admit and give credit to the actors. They did a good job on that one as well. And it wasn't. Thank goodness, none of the acting here was B movie acting. I know we all have our share of watching films that are B movie bad, but this one really stands out and I'm, I was surprised. So thank you, Paul, for recommending this one. <laughs> I was hesitant at first, but it, it turned out to be cool. <laughs> I know how last round table with like, even like black Christmas, we had, we, I was mentioning it's a Canadian film. A Christmas Horror Story is also a Canadian film as well, which I, once again, didn't even know that. So I thought that was cool. Um, I mean, 
Uh, what am I reading here? Uh, something about this was intentional as the filmmakers were responsible for the Ginger Snap films and director John is one of the creators of Orson Black. Huh. It's that, uh, it's, the film actually takes place in the fictional town of Bailey Down, which is Ginger Snaps. That's really interesting. So, and I, I mean, for those that may not know Ginger Snaps too, but that's like a werewolf film that, uh, Tessa was telling me about. So, huh. That makes me wonder, could this actually kind of be one of those, like, crossover things, uh, where it's, like, multiple things going on in this one town, or should I say universe, as, uh, most people would say? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> well, I don't know. All I know is that this movie caught me by surprise. I enjoyed it, and, yeah. I, I can't say the same for most Krampus movies that release... And there's so many of them. <laughs> Stop it already, please. Oh, gosh. Uh, it's okay. We'll just wait till we get, like, Motto Krampus 3 or something. Oh, like gosh. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. I couldn't believe it when I saw that, too. Uh, I was well, at Walmart, and I see Motto Krampus, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> That's sad. I can't believe it. That's Krampus so sad. is everywhere. <laughs> Krampus has become commercialized commercialized and and that's going to bring us to the next topic here but uh, I I prefer Krampus when he was low key indie films not so much popular but now it's like they're churning out so many films of Krampus it's become the next Bigfoot how many Bigfoot movies do we need come on stop we got other creatures to talk about Segment 2. Exclusive Interviews Neil Shukla. Writer, Director. Adal Distorted. Our exclusive interview segment continues with the conversation with Director writer Niall Shukla and we're going to be discussing his latest short film titled A Doll Distorted this is a 17 minute horror short film that is currently in film festival circulation to which it is winning multiple awards across various categories here is the synopsis for A Doll Distorted Jane suffers from hafiphobia, the pathological fear of touch. Tormented by years of loneliness and isolation, she orders a synthetic love doll online to nightmarish consequences. In this conversational interview with Niall Shukla, I delve on the various psychological aspects that he presents in A Doll Distorted and also the cinematography and writing the, the, the narrative behind this film, the visual narrative in particular, quite stunning. Do check out our review on DK Mag and also 
we featured an audio accompaniment review in our 100th podcast episode. Links to both media we will be providing in our podcast notes. Visit dkmag.com for information on those two media. Without further ado, here is my interview with Niall Shukla. To start off the interview, uh, please provide some more information about yourself. In particular, what got you into creating film? I guess uh, after I left university, while I was doing university, I knew I wanted to um, to do something in film. And uh, I studied economics and philosophy at university, which, as every filmmaker studies, you know. Um, but uh, I knew that I wanted to get into film some way and uh, didn't know how to go about doing it. And so the first uh, thing I decided to do is I just, it was a bit crazy, I just decided to just make a film on my own. Um, so the first short film I made was called Guilt. And um, that was made entirely as like a one-man crew. Um, and uh, I acted in that as well, uh, which was pretty bizarre. Um, and that was literally, I, I just started after I left university thinking, how can I just make some shots that look good just to, just to get my confidence up? And so I started making all these shots that looked good. And then at the end of it, I got in the editing room and uh, it made no sense. And I was like, all right, how do I use all these images together to make a story? And then uh, I found a way to do that. And then it turned into a, a film. And then that uh, fortunately did well on the festival circuit. And um, and then that started getting me jobs in the industry. And, and uh, that was my first my first big step, I guess you could say. And I was about 21 at the time. Oh wow! Well, congratulations to that. I, 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 I'm aware that especially when you want to start out, or anyone who wants to start out, the the filmmaker or the writer, whatever the case may be, they really want to emphasize the the cinema, the cinematography, and everything else to make a great product. And sometimes that becomes the hurdle because they want to be such a perfectionist that when it doesn't come out right, they get deterred and uh, I quit and they don't pursue their dream. It's always important to just continue with it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, when you're first starting out, I guess uh, I guess it's you really you really want to make something that looks uh, professional. Um, so that's the first. Uh, Initially, that was the first big hurdle is that you don't want to make something that people look at and go, oh, that looks like an amateur production. And so that was that was something that was very much in the forefront of my mind when I started out. I just wanted to make something that looked like you're a professional filmmaker. Nowadays, actually, I think that's a lot easier to do uh, with the technology we have available. Um, but uh, when I was when I was making uh, when I was like 21 and I was making it, I was making it with a, a camera called uh, a 60D, a mm-hmm. Canon 60D. And it was a good camera, but um, it had a lot of... Uh, you could still see that the production value was very amateurish. And uh, so I learned all these tricks, actually, as I was making the film with that camera um, to try and increase the production value. So things like um, like making... 
like doing dual exposures of shots. So like I would do like a, a shot at a really low exposure and then a shot and the exact same shot at a really high exposure and plan the storyboard that way. So then I was able to have like fake a very fake a camera that had a really high dynamic range when I put the two shots together. Um, and then that's almost actually a technique that I've carried with me into these other films. Um, so I learned a lot of things in terms of how to make something on a high budget production value with a low budget. Um, and, uh, but then as you begin to make a film that's got really high production value, you realize that obviously the most important thing is the story and it never replaces that. Absolutely. It, that is absolutely correct. And with the, with the Canon 60D, that's, that's one of the cameras that I have here. Uh, I use it mostly for photography, but I've heard it's been used to film sitcoms and, and TV talk shows over here. And I said to myself, hmm. And I started to watch the show. Uh, okay, how does it look so crisp and professional? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, the thing is, I think is there with with cameras and stuff like in the, in the film industry, like you can say you used a particular camera, but it's incredibly misleading because... Um, for instance, you could say I filmed something on an iPhone 10 mm -hmm. and it looks and it looks great. But uh, what that might mean, what it might actually mean um, is I filmed something on an iPhone 10 and I had, you know, uh, I paid a, a DP 10,000 grand to uh, light it all professionally. We had all the professional lens attachments and, you know, shifted like the mount on the the iphone to give it like some uh cinema lenses and then we added hacked software into the system and then after you add all these exponential things on onto the initial camera um it becomes like um a bit misleading to say you, you filmed it on that camera because if someone else went to try and film that something on a 60d Uh, without using all the software and hacks, um, it might turn out differently. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so I think sometimes us filmmakers, we all get caught up uh, when we're first starting out uh, too much in what camera was used and less in all the peripheral things that, um, that are important to making something look good uh, cinematography-wise. Right. And, and that is one area that really as soon as the the first few seconds of adult distorted begins is the cinematography as quite phenomenal and it's one of the few films that I have seen in the past couple of years that the the production really emphasizes light painting how to get that the mood setting with or without uh, adequate lighting And how did, how did that come together? I'm so curious because everything, it looks amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's difficult to like, I think, I think we should preface, uh, preface this by just like outlining that the film was made as a two man crew. So um, it was uh, a lot of the things it's difficult for me to separate like where one job started and when mm -hmm. one job, another job began. So, um, 
The only other crew member apart from myself I had on the job was a, a lighting and camera assistant. His name is uh, James Avarice, and he, he's a he's a great like uh, filmmaker. Um, uh, he, he hadn't made any films before we had started, but uh, just like as a, as a crew member, he, he, he was he was really important to help me. But all the other jobs, the the writing, directing, the editing, the visual effects, the cinematography, the set design, the sound design, I did I did all of those, and and so when I start thinking about the cinematography aspect, it's difficult to like separate it from from other things that I did in post, and then other things that I did with the set design because you realize you realize when you're trying to make images look good. Um, that all those different elements come together. Like I think it's impossible to to really make something look stunning consistently mm-hmm. for our whole film without without really good set design. Uh, because the set design is what you're pointing the camera. Um, right. And so I kind of broke it all down into those different stages. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question, but mm-hmm. um, but but it's it's something that. Um, there's something that I, uh, I think is really important that you've got to have all those different stages together in order to get uh, really beautiful images, if that's what you're going for. Right. Uh, from a photographer perspective, I know to, to create one still image, you have to incorporate the lighting, the, 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 the set has to look nice. Uh, even the model herself or himself, they have to be spot on. Uh, that's why when I was watching a doll distorted, it's like the the whole scene itself. Uh, there was an an astute eye to detail, especially with the lighting. That's that's one thing that really jumps out on me. And the uh, I could incorporate that with the photography aspect because I know from experience there's, there's a lot of detail that goes into setting up that one particular shot. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Um, cinematography is, it's a real, uh, it's one of the really, the hard parts about making a film. Like, if you don't have that right, that is obviously a huge part. Um, it's also one of the po- sections that I felt uh, required the most most amount of work. Um, and uh, that's why cinematographers, I guess, are, are so expensive in the industry. Um, uh, but uh, I guess, I guess, I guess it just came down to breaking everything down into parts again for me. Um, I'm not, I'm not a professional cinematographer before making this film, so um, a lot of it, you know, you're just making up. Um, but I, I uh, for cinematography, I had two main references for the film, and that was um, that was The Godfather, and uh, and uh, a photographer called uh, Gregory Crudson. Uh, he he makes these uh, stunning, really wide landscape, uh, not landscape, but like really wide uh, images of um, very mysterious, like Lynchian things of people in in their homes um, with kind of stories in like this one image. And, um, and those were kind of two conscious decisions because I felt like in the cinematography in The Godfather, everything's very dark and... It's very heavy moodlet, and there's kind of um, a mystery quality to the way uh, Greg, um, uh, Gordon Willis uh, lights people in The Godfather. 
and uh, he he does this very heavy down lighting on Marlon Brando, and and he said like that was a way to to mask some of the makeup effects that were put on Brando, but that's also a really uh, useful thing if you're on a really low budget because the darker you can like uh, make the make the image as part of the film itself it means that you can hide certain uh production aspects that you don't feel are, are quite up to scratch so you don't have to spend as much money on certain set design pieces and those types of things because the general atmosphere of each room is that it's meant to be dark and so it was kind of a decision where I thought it looked good and it also was cheap. I think that was just, that was the reasoning behind it. And that is so important when, when creating a film and it all ties into the story. If you're creating a film, the, the set and the ambience and everything else that goes along with creating that visual narrative has to tie in with the story. Uh, I've seen so often that the, especially in horror, the story is dark, but the lighting itself on, on that particular scene just throws everything off, either intentional or not. And you feel kind of disconnected with the story itself because you want to immerse yourself in, in the dark tonality of the of the film. But then again, that light this situation or however that's positioned just doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Because there are a lot of horrors, actually, that you see that I think... Um that sometimes I think uh, cinematography-wise, it, 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 it's, it's a funny one because it, it, it kind of subconsciously indicates to you that a film is worth watching sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes a film can actually have a great story, but people don't give it a chance because it's got that very low production value, yeah. uh, particularly, particularly if there's no actor that attached to it. Um, and you get that a lot with, with some horrors that, they actually have some really great stories and uh, and direction, but um, if it doesn't look like something that's uh, that's up to up to the standard that you think it should be, you, you don't really give it the the time of day, and and you also come out of it thinking that it was a bit amateurish sometimes when it when it wasn't, um, and that's what I think a lot of those great horrors that are coming out now, a lot of them actually have that in common, like you look at the witch or hereditary or. Uh, um, or like the haunting of Hill House, they all have just spot on, um, you know, cinematic look that that's in tone with the story, um, and I think that's one of the secrets of why they do so well. Absolutely right, and and those are the hidden gems of horror, and it it just pains me when I hear uh, the the casual viewer. Uh, state otherwise that the film wasn't scary. I, what, what? Don't look at the film for that. Watch the film because it's 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 a work of art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Um, well, it's, it's one of those interesting ones, where, particularly with horror, where you wonder. Some horrors aren't like jump out scary, um, right. are they? Yeah, but they 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 have a. It's like The Shining. I don't really feel like it's a jump out scary film uh, you don't really sh- like i don't find myself watching it sh- shrieking or screaming but you 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 come away from it because of that work of aspect art aspect you start coming out of it thinking feeling like there's this ominous presence or quality to the film that is almost more scary than if it um occasionally frightened you um 
I don't know, but that but it's different with every horror film, I guess. Right, and and speaking about having that ominous presence, uh, your film Adult Distorted does convey that, especially from the opening frame, and you have a a, a nice technique of connecting the protagonist with the audience because we want to know what happens to her we until the final frame when everything comes together we're latched on uh, so how did this whole idea come together and especially this particular character she's so complex yeah no thank you um obviously uh empathy's a really important aspect um but a lot of that is a lot of that like i think you know like you could say like 60% of the film is made when you've just written it so those decisions a lot of it are in the writing process of how you can carry the audience through through the structure of the film and because um, there's obviously a twist in the, in the film and and you try to yeah you try to guide people along with the main protagonist. But, um, but that was uh, the character itself. It, it was, it was mainly born to me out of the idea of, um, uh, of loneliness of, uh, someone who's incredibly lonely. And, um, I've always felt like, uh, I always felt like particularly horrific things that some people do. Everyone's got a backstory, um, so even though someone might be seen as a monster when you when you first read about them in the newspaper or something like that, there's always a backstory behind why. M- mostly, there's always a backstory behind why that person did what they did, and uh, we never really get to see that backstory with most people. Um, you know how they were brought up. You know things that their mother did or said to them, or their father did or said to them, and and so they can end up doing horrific things. And so I guess I saw this woman's loneliness and isolation and and all these types of aspects as being huge parts of who she is and things that happen uh, in her life. Uh- that is certainly a fact. Uh, everyone has a backstory, and you bring up the the the, the monster in the paper. And what's more frightening, uh, especially for for me personally, uh, and as a writer too, is the the quiet person, the the low key person that you would not expect. Uh, they have a more interesting backstory than the monster you read about in the paper. And and that's how when, when I was watching this film, I, I see the protagonist and her story develop. A regular average person, uh, nothing off key, and then. 360 we get the the final reveal in act three which which is phenomenal because it makes audiences realize okay there's monsters hidden uh within the the inner psyches of the average person yeah yeah i I don't yeah it's difficult it's difficult to talk about it without like like explaining like the plot elements in the film but yeah yeah, no that's it's it's definitely true but like you you get Obviously, you get people like that in real, in real life, real life stories where um, uh, I remember, like, you just you just hear about people who talk about uh, they were in court 
you know, trying to defend someone who turned out to be a serial killer or something, and they never knew that the person was a serial killer. Um, uh, I think you know people said that about you know Ted Bundy. Um, there was like his next door neighbor was one of the people who came to court, and uh, and she you know swore blind that he, he was not a murderer, but then. Then when all this evidence was presented in court one day, I remember hearing the story where he walked out and he just looked at her and just shrugged his shoulders and smiled. Yeah. And then she knew and she was she was horrified. Just And just a complete turnaround between someone, the person you thought you, you knew and then the person you actually know. Um, it's, a, it's a mysterious thing and it's kind of scary with, with people in the sense that you never really know someone um uh, which which is yeah i guess it ties in with that theme the great thing about horror cinema is the fact that it's a great platform to convey social commentary uh and in this case uh, viewers have so many options especially astute viewers who really can analyze film and it's worthiness in art as in an art form there are so many multiple levels on that we could break down this film psychological wise from your perspective without spoon feeding the audience of course uh, what was one of the messages you wanted to convey you went into loneliness uh, is there something else another hidden uh, significance mm, um Yeah, I, I mean, loneliness was obviously a huge one, and uh, but it was, I guess you could say, I think I think loneliness was the main one. Like the the other, I guess the other theme that's in the film you don't really discover until you see, um, like the, the end part of the film. Mm -hmm. But uh, but but I guess. I guess mentally tortured people was was something that I was interested in exploring, and uh, and how and how loneliness um, is is really is is a horror story. You know, uh, um, if you're ever someone who who's had a real period of loneliness in your life, like that can that can like that's like what they say for for like a lot of teenagers like commit suicide and stuff, and I'm sure a lot of that is due to um loneliness and feeling isolated and if you don't feel like if you don't have a social network or people uh, i don't mean social network like facebook or anything but i just mean like a, an actual physical social network right um you know that obviously has a huge impact on your mental health and and that can lead to all sorts of things um It's like a, like there's that quote in Of Mice and Men where he says, you know, if a man's alone for too long, he gets sick. And uh, I guess, I guess, so many things are in the film to do with that. Absolutely, yes. And the, in the case with suicide, yeah, unfortunately, a couple of years back, we had one incident here uh, that I personally know of. Uh, The young kid, very young, and going through some trauma with his, uh, I believe it was his wife, and he committed suicide. The most grotesque way, uh, gunshot to the head, and he was such a happy kid, and it ha happened all of a sudden. So I could definitely see how loneliness could really rip 
someone apart and it's 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 a very complex state to be in yeah no a hundred percent um but uh it's yeah it's one of those things where everyone everyone's got their own narratives and and sometimes yeah sometimes you know being happy and all those types of things requires work and you got to it doesn't just come about and you got to I don't know, but this is it's one of those cases where everyone's story is different, and uh, uh, you never really know how hard it is for some people. Right, right. Is is not how how it is painted to be in these romantic comedies? That is not how real real life is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it is it is for some people. Some people, um, like I'm very happy, <laughs> despite like making very dark films. Uh, and I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure you'll have it as well, despite like covering dark topics. But, yes. uh, but uh, like, uh, yeah, it's just one of those cases where everyone has their own narratives. But I think, I think um, people who have dark stories are always somewhat interesting to us uh, as viewers. I, I always think that's actually a strange thing about just, just the basic principles of narrative storytelling in general. Like, if you think about it, everyone's kind of got this strange view of this strange interest where they want to see people who have got um, conflict. Because, for instance, everyone will get bored if you make a story that has no conflict or no crisis. So, um, as a writer, you end up having to take someone who's perfectly normal or maybe perfectly happy and say, well... I can't write about someone who's perfectly normal, perfectly happy. I have to give them something, some sort of crisis, some sort of conflict in their life, because otherwise people won't want to watch it. So I think that says an interesting thing just about human psychology and human nature, that even us as entertainment, you know, we're not happy just watching someone who is perfectly happy. We have to see someone who is going through some sort of issues in their life. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just a strange thing when you think about it. Yeah, it's 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 voyeuristic and sadistic at the same time, and I think that's the culture that we're in, especially with social media, that we have all these that content at our disposal. We watch it on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't really do much social media. That's one of my flaws, actually. Uh, but uh, I uh, I try to, but. I just always find it takes up too much time, to be honest. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's so true. Uh, but, for, but for this type of field, for marketing the film and getting the word out, it works wonders. But for personal stuff, I, I don't, I don't go to it at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because I pretty much cover everything with the film. Like you have to, you have to be very present on social media, and uh, it's it's tough to keep up with everything. You feel like you realize it's a full time job, social media. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I give kudos to to those who are studying all that psychology behind it. Uh, that that's not for me. I just go on it, do what I gotta do to get off. <laughs> mm, yeah, definitely. Uh, for adult distorted, uh, how how long was the process in creating the initial script, and also from getting that script from the production phase to the final cut? Uh, all right. Well, I should um, I should just like preface this by. Saying that, um, so the film had a, a pretty strange production, which is ties into the reason why I ended up having to do all these roles myself. Uh, so I, 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 I wrote the sh- wrote the short, and then I 
started designing a set um and then uh um uh, an issue happened where this the the set that i designed and the storyboards that i had designed and if you see the film you'll realize that the storyboards are intimately connected with the room that the protagonist is in mm-hmm. um it's it's all very isolated in in this type of confines that set um was uh was unfortunately like in a property that ended up being um ended up uh having some some renovation work and that property ended up uh, uh ended up having to be um partly uh partly uh torn down you could say and we we i had to had to uh I had a very limited amount of time uh, in order to uh, finish the film. Uh, and so that whole process was escalated. Um, and so it put me in a really uh, a challenging situation where I had this, this set and I had uh, everything ready to go, um, apart from I hadn't uh, sourced all my crew yet and I hadn't uh, gone down the traditional route of getting funding and, and and putting schedules and all these di- crew and people together and aligning people's schedules. And then, uh, so then I just had this uh, question to myself was, do, do I go down the traditional route of getting all these people together, uh, by which time this set will have been destroyed? Uh, mm. um, or do I just pick up my camera and just start filming it right now um, and try and film it as fast as I can? And so... Um, that was the that was the option I ended up taking. Uh, so, uh, but as a consequence of that, um, it, it it was pieced together in bits and pieces because I filmed it that first main section in the house uh, in that one room, and then later on I went and uh, filmed um, some other scenes in a bungalow about three months later, um, and tried to try to make it look like in the final film like it was all one house and uh, anyone who watches it never knows that it was all filmed in like separate little houses and stitched together as if it was one house um so uh i think we filmed for a total of about uh 10 days um which is actually quite a long time for a short film i guess you could say but it was a lot it was it was a very different type of process because it was all done as a two man crew um, and uh, and and it, it had this strange story of its production behind it. Mm. And that's that's another aspect that I see with up and coming filmmakers, especially with horror film, is the challenges of wearing all the hats. And there's also the challenges of having multiple people on the crew, especially when they are inexperienced in delegating the necessary task of the day and everything gets compounded and a set, a film set just gets chaotic very quickly if you don't have everything uh, organized as the way it should. So in your, in your opinion, what 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 are better solutions? Uh, have a small team, have everything on uh, under your control? What works out? Um, so I, I think the first big question is budget. Like how much of a budget do you have? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, um, it's not my intention to make uh, films like with very limited crews, uh, unless I have, uh, if I if I don't have, yeah, with limited crews, um, 
but but that you're only forced into those situations when you have a, a small budget. But um, so that's the first economic reason. And the second one is, um, I think there are a lot of jobs that um, you you. I just ask myself now, having done all these jobs, I start asking myself, well, which jobs can't I do? And then which jobs are going to take too much time for me to do? So either way, the way I try and break it down now is I just think about which jobs do I want to delegate out? Um, but it, it's it's one of those ones where I I really think it just all comes down to the the pre-planning. Like if you really break everything down and and think about all right, this is what I want the sets to look like, and you have a very clear idea as a director of what you want, very very much from the outset. Um, then you're going to have a far better idea of who you want to get. I think I think that's where the real issues come through, where where you've you've hired a bunch of people because the film industry, you know, it's standard practice to hire those people, but you, you may not actually need some of those people, or you may not know why you need them, and you have to figure all those things out before you start hiring people. Right, and when it comes to getting a, a team together. It's always good to have a second pair of eyes. Uh, everybody wants to jump behind the camera, but there's much more details involved in that. You need someone to to make sure that everything is is correct on your shot, so that way when you go to the next shot, everything uh, everything falls through. This, for example, if the actor's wearing a blue sweater and you film him again and his sweater's red, that continuity issue is going to be so obvious. So it's always good to have like, a extra pair of eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was that was one of the big things that um, actually my camera and lighting system was really great at. He, I guess he was like an unofficial continuity person as well where he... Because uh, when you're trying to juggle all these different hats... It, yeah, it's obviously so helpful just just to have an extra pair of eyes, like uh, like my friend was. Um, uh, but yeah, th- that's that's surprising. Like you'll be surprised, like how easy it is to to mess up on continuity. Um, uh, and obviously, it has a huge impact, like on the film, because if you mess up continuity, it kind of brings people out of the film and they start going, "What's going on?" <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen films like that. Uh, for example, uh, one uh, recently I watched a film and the actor is talking on his mobile phone. Uh, wait a second, the mobile phone is not on, and then the <laughs> next shot, the mobile phone is on. Uh, what's going on here? That's <laughs> <laughs> it. Yeah, that 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 happens. Uh, but uh, I mean, I rarely ever notice actually continuity issues in films. Uh, but that's kind of like because I just get quite. Ed- absorbed in the actual film um but uh yeah it's it's one of those things you don't want to mess up um yeah right and and also you bring up the topic of budget being of of importance and seeing how how important is it to really craft something with the with the with the limited budget but getting the necessary look let's say that's cinematic cinematic quality you're looking for is there a workaround or getting that budget is principle um i think there is i think there is a workaround um i think uh it's it that that's all in the planning stage you have to you have to plan uh practically for uh 
what your budget is. Um, like, for instance, when, when we're doing the storyboards, I, I, I broke down things into those those separate shots um, in terms of I break down everything in terms of the visual effects shots and then think about how we can do the visual effects shots uh, quicker and uh, with less work and less time spent in post, which is obviously time is money. I guess the sacrifice you always make is budget versus time. If you if you want to make something that's got a really high, should have a really high budget, but you don't have the budget, you, I reckon you can still pull it off. It's just going to cost you a whole lot more amount of time. And so that's a decision you have to make yourself when you first start out. Yeah, and that's an area where most filmmakers are weary. They, they, some don't want to jump onto the crowdfunding platform because they feel it's a form of of panhandling or begging. Uh, it's a great resource, and it also helps if you create a, a a reel or a teaser of the project that you want to do, so you could give those potential backers something that they could look at and reference. Say, oh, okay, this guy. Oh, girl has uh, an eye for their vision. Let's contribute some money here. Yeah, no, I think I think those things are really good for filmmakers. Um, I haven't I haven't used crowdfunding yet, but I'm I'm very I'm very excited about that aspect of the industry. Um, things are becoming more democratized, uh, but that's something I definitely want to explore. But it was something that. Um, I did want to explore with this one, uh, this short, Double Distorted, but um, like I said, because of that time window I was I was in, um, I, because that set was going to get demolished, I just, a lot of my ideal plans for funding and those types of things uh, were thrown out the window. Um, uh, so, because obviously crowdfunding, if you want to do it right, you know, you, you've got to really spend the time designing a good crowdfunding campaign. Um so, uh, yeah, so that's something I want to explore maybe on the next one. Uh, but, yeah, I definitely encourage filmmakers to do that. I've seen, uh, seen lots of filmmakers on the circuit who talked about, you know, they got their money via crowdfunding and those types of things. Um, yes, yeah, so it's a great world. And how has the reception of Adult Distorted uh, uh, have gotten you? It's 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 doing great on the film festival circuit, winning awards. Has the reality set in yet? Like, wow, I can't believe it's, it's gotten so much uh, great reception. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm like, I'm yeah, I'm really grateful. Um, it's uh, it's yeah, it's been doing it's been doing really well around the world, and. Um, he got into Sitges, which is like a, the top horror and fantasy film festival in the world, um, and that was that was gigantic. Like literally, I'd know, I didn't know much about Sitges before I went there, uh, but um, you know, you 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 haven't seen like what it's really like a film festival is really like like until you go to one of those big festivals like that, and they just just thousands of people, um, and uh, yeah, I'm just happy that it's just getting all. Uh, uh, not all the awards, but like lots of awards. And um, the bizarre thing is, I've now started getting awards for my visual effects work and for my editing and and, and set design and stuff like that, along with the direction. And uh, you know, I don't really consider myself a, a professional VFX artist by any means, but um, yeah, it's, it's nice to get awards for those things. Um, but uh, 
the main thing I, I get interested in is just you know being in a crowd in a cinema or uh, just watching people um you know watch your film and just shrieking or screaming like or just just seeing people just intense uh just it's such a it's such an exhilarating feeling when you're just you're in a cinema and you're just sitting with people and none of them know you made the film you know to begin with that's it's quite an experience um, I also like uh, I also like like afterwards going to like some of the audience members and just talking to them casually as if I'm just like a a normal uh, movie goer and not letting them know <laughs> that I made a film and then I'll go I'll go to people I'll go oh so what did you think of those shorts and then like um, <laughs> you know like you'll just speak to some people and just be like oh that short was amazing and then like sometimes you might catch an occasional occasional person will go oh, I wasn't I didn't like that uh-huh. and then I'll just and then I'll just be like yeah no I didn't like it either yeah <laughs> <laughs> and just uh, just keeping that anonymity but it's it's funny because um, it's a film that uh, it's a it's gotten really great great responses and um, you know I'm, I'm really happy about that particularly the amount of work you have to put into making the film these days as well yeah there's so much work that gets involved and that's why that's why when I watched this film it, it just blew me away the, the visuals the story and the one topic here on the podcast uh, with my co-host and myself we always discuss the need for originality and original content and it's great to see filmmakers in the independent scene churning out original fresh ideas because unfortunately here in Hollywood <laughs> they don't provide that at all they are, they are still in the reboot rehash phase and it's just mind boggling with their budget they, they can't come up with something as original as this <laughs> yeah no it's it's sad. It's it's slightly sad where the industry's at currently in in terms of blockbusters. Seems to be Marvel and just uh, and remakes uh, in the cinemas. But you do occasionally get you know some really I, and I like those films actually. You know I do like you know the blockbuster films, but it's just you want to see a variety as well. Um, but uh, um, I have actually seen like on the festival circuit, you see a lot of really great original material, but. Uh, you start you start going where is a lot of this original material going and uh, i think a lot of it's going straight to vod now and um and netflix and those types of things which is great because at least they're getting a home uh but um um, i don't think it's i don't think it's a very i don't think this is like a the best long-term strategy i i think i think it'd be great to get more more vod platforms so there was a bit more competition and um uh, and then the one thing I think is a huge reason for uh, for uh, you know why the why the uh, why the companies do do those things and play it safe is maybe their margins are being squeezed now in feature films um, and you know with the rise of TV and the rise of Netflix and those types of things you know it takes more to get people to come out of their seat and uh, go to the cinema and. Uh, so I think I just think they I think they're feeling the pressure. Uh, uh, I think that's the case. I don't think people in the industry, you know, want to just keep making a bunch of remakes. I think they would ideally like to make really original content that also makes a lot of money, but they just they can't justify it in terms of you know the cost and the risk. Yeah, that that may be the case, and I see 
right now it's it's great that the independent scene a lot i would say 80 percent is in control of the filmmaker him or herself controlling the content creating the content and if it's a feature film really dictating how monetary wise and not only that but to build themselves as a filmmaker uh, how to exploit those different areas as opposed to a few years back that major motion picture houses would dictate um, basically everything from the script to how each scene should be shot so i like that shift that everything's going to the to the control of the creator yeah definitely it's becoming so democratized and uh yeah you're you're seeing that where you can make your own film like a there's a filmmaker i really love called shane caruth uh he did a he did a film called primer and upstream color and he, he won his first film at sundance uh he won the jury award there and he, every second feature, he decided that he wasn't even going to try and even get any distribution deal. He was just going to distribute it himself. Um, and uh, that was back when, you know, not many people were doing that. And, but now you get lots of people doing it. And uh, um, it's great. It's, it's it's great that, you know, people are having that more control. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd love to, uh, I still think there's something slightly sad, though, when you see, like, really great independent films that, you know, you wish... You wish they did get uh, more theatrical releases. Uh, so, but I think that's just something with the industry. I think, I personally think something has to change in the cinemas, where where there has to be some innovation in in the cinema cinematic technology, because there's all this innovation behind the screen, behind you know, in cameras and all these types of things. But you don't get much inno- innovation in terms of how cinemas are projecting films uh, and how films are being watched. And I personally think if there was more innovation in that side, it would have such a huge knock-on effect on the rest of the industry because a lot of people would be able to see more of a value in why they want to go to the cinema. I think I think a big, big hump for people is how they... Uh, they a lot of people see there's not as much value in going to the cinema because they just see it's a bigger version of their TV at home. Um uh, I think I think that's a big big aspect to this whole conversation. Right. Yeah. And to close out the interview, uh, a little bit. It's an open platform. You could plug in any information of your upcoming projects, uh, those that you can share, and also any information on a doll distorted. Where can audiences find this? And of course, anything you care to add. Um, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, well, Dog Sorted, uh, I, do, I do plan uh, potentially on releasing it online. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But at the moment, it is you can find it in film festivals. Um, it'll be uh, the next film festival. It's playing in uh, are in the UK. It's playing uh, in um, in London Short Film Festival in January uh, on the twelfth, and uh, and then it's Horror and Sea Film Festival as well. And then uh, it's, it's playing in a, a quite a few others uh, around the world. Um, it's difficult to keep track, to be honest. Uh, but uh, uh, if you just Google it, so I'm always putting it up, up on the Facebook page, which is at Adult Distorted. And then in terms of um, my future projects, um, I'm currently writing uh, for uh, doing a feature. And uh, um, I can't really say what it's about right now, but... Um, you know, when I uh, 
when I'm in that stage where I can ready to launch it, I will be. But um, yeah, it's been great having been on the show, man. So thank you very much. You're welcome, and uh, yeah, all the best. I look forward to seeing more of your work. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Segment two: Exclusive interviews. Megan Friels Johnson, director, writer. Ice cream truck. Megan Friels Johnson, director, writer. Ice cream truck. Hello, new neighbor. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the neighborhood. My husband is uh, in Seattle. Another week. Did you know that we have an ice cream truck? Something about him was so creepy. Some things in this life are sacred. The ice cream truck being one of them. Good evening, young lady. What'll it be? Closing out the exclusive interview portion for this podcast is a returning guest, and we are thrilled and honored to have writer director Megan Friels Johnston. Megan Friels Johnston was a guest on our show. Back in DK Mag podcast season five, episode two, and at that time we were discussing her latest release, the horror thriller titled "The Ice Cream Truck." Now here's a synopsis on that film: Mary moves back to her suburban hometown to find that the suburbs are scarier in many ways. Than she ever imagined, and in this interview, we will be discussing not only the w- women's contribution to horror, horror cinema, and entrepreneur entertainment, but we will also be discussing Megan Friels Johnston' upcoming production titled "Hunting Season." So, without further ado, and with great pleasure, I. Present my conversational interview with Megan Friels Johnston. Uh, one aspect that I'm curious about, especially as an independent filmmaker, uh, a mom, a wife, uh, curiosity for those in listening who are juggling multiple things at the same time and trying to get their dream off the ground. Uh, how is that like, and how in your Schedule. How do you juggle everything? Well, um, I was a producer first, so um, you know, I, I didn't initially think I was going to be a filmmaker. I I was, you know, a producer, so I would find material and I would find talent and directors, and so I really got to understand um, the world of filmmaking in that way. And and before. Becoming a producer, I obviously worked my way through many assistant jobs, you know, working for producers and agents and managers. And, you know, I really learned the business. Um, it got to a certain point as a producer where, you know, I felt that I wanted to do more than just develop the projects and, and find the people that I wanted to tell stories myself. And, um, you know, I didn't make my first film as a director until after my son was born. So I think my son was about one. Um, 
And, you know, after he was born, that's kind of when I started writing because I was at home taking care of him in the day and trying to juggle my career, but you're forced to kind of be at home more. So Mm -hmm. that didn't really sit well with me. So, you know, when he was napping and things like that, you know, I started writing and um, that was when I wrote, I believe it was my second script and that was for the film Rebound, which was my first film and, um, you know, which was such an, an amazing experience. And then I really just kind of got the bug. I, you know, I knew that that's what I was meant to do. I, I think for me, the advice that I would give to people is that, you know, you have to make it happen for yourself. There's no one who kind of just gave me an opportunity. You know, it, I have a love of film. I wasn't sure which way that was going to manifest itself. I kind of, you know, took a few different paths, but you know, you have to work really hard in this business to work um, in the film industry or, you know, in TV, it's one of the hardest careers you can have. So you really have to give it more than a hundred percent because I I do think it will, um, you know, it'll pay off in the long run, but yeah, if you just expect it to magically happen or if you put in a little bit of work, it, it just doesn't work that way. So now I have two kids and still, <laughs> it's still a struggle to kind of juggle, you know, being a parent and um, being a filmmaker. But, you know, you make it work. If you, if you love what you do, um, you make it work. My, my grandfather uh, was a famous author and he had a day job for a long time before he made it big. And he would write at five in the morning before he went to work. So I think that kind of drive was always kind of talked about in my family that it's just, if you really want to do it, you'll do it. And, you know, excuses aren't really worth a whole lot, you know? Right. And it, it, that's definitely advice to live by, especially uh, for single parents, both male and female. Uh, the struggle is real. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not single, but yeah. I can't <laughs> even imagine right. um, how they would do it. I really don't, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I use that example because it's so much of a challenge that they have to go either two jobs, trying to fulfill their dream, taking care of the kids. So, and it's, it's a lot. And these days, it's all about fulfilling the dream. I think we're living in a great time that we have so many tools at our disposal to really succeed for our personal endeavors, as opposed to really staying mm-hmm. in the nine to five grind. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you have limited time to write or, or to put together, you know, a project, whatever you're, um, whether it's, practicing acting, whatever your artistic dreams are, when you have limited time, I think you just have to use it to the fullest and try not to get distracted. And, you know, you have to be um, pretty disciplined, I think, to make it happen. But there, there is truth to be told about working smarter, you know, in the time that, that you have. Absolutely. So, yeah, I can't imagine um, being a single mom trying to do it. I, you know, I'm married. My husband is, is very helpful and, you know, an active participant in our, in our universe (laughs) over here. So, you know, we make it work. 
Right. Yeah, it, it, it's great to have a, a, a partner in crime that really helps you and, and supports you. Uh, my wife, she does all the my accounting stuff. So, hey, that's your. Oh, she does. Yeah, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't do it. I, I love to write. I love creating podcasts. Uh, she loves numbers. I say, take care of the numbers. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also why one of the reasons there are so many more male directors. I think obviously it started as a, um, a you know, more of a male career, mm-hmm. but I think it's also being a director is extremely difficult uh, as a mother because you're gone for long stretches or if you're shooting nights, you know, your family, you're like, you're like ships crossing in the night when you're actually making a film. And, and I think that, you know, there's mothers have guilt in terms of like not, you know, being away from their kids. And I, I think that male directors, it's, it's a more understood thing and maybe there, um, you know, wasn't as much guilt, but I, I definitely think that's, that's definitely a struggle. Mm. You know, dealing with that and not seeing your kids when you're in the thick of it. One theme is the current landscape of horror cinema, in particular, the horror community. We have film festivals that really showcase the talents. Uh, do you see, uh, from your personal perspective, that the landscape is shaping how the creator has more control over his or her content and in in a few years the major studios or even the small studios are going to be left wondering how they're going to be able to control distribution and marketing if everything is in the creator's hands i think the the lower the budget of the the film the more control the creatives have or Mm. that a writer director can have the bigger the budget, the less control. And um, that is true of most films, I think, because you, you know, it's hard to make your money back with VOD and piracy and all that stuff. Right. So um, I think there's probably, that's not as much the case if you're a really famous director or filmmaker, but I would say for most people, the more, the bigger the budget, the more cooks, cooks in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And you know, horror is probably one of the better genres for creatives, I think, um, just because there's so many horror fans and different kinds of horror films. There's many subgenres and all of that stuff. But, um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, the more money, <laughs> the less control. And, and that's just, I think, how it will probably always be. Um, because, yeah, you know, you can't, if you don't, if a company or a person or if a film doesn't do well, then that affects everyone involved for doing the next film. So there's always a lot of pressure, you know, that your film does well. Right. And in, in your comment, uh, you're quoted as saying people seek out fresh, talented directors, big and small, and support their films. Uh, one aspect that I relate to with your, with that quote is the crowdfunding platforms that are disposable right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Most fi- most filmmakers are even weary of using that, not knowing that the community is there to help them. Um, you know, I, I've done crowdfunding once for post-production money. I, I found it to be um, <laughs> a not 
super pleasurable experience uh. because you're, um, well, I just think you're, you work so hard for so little right. that it's almost better to just have a business sense and be, make yourself more of an entrepreneur uh, mm-hmm. and figure out, okay, who, who do I know, you know, or in my orbit, you know, know people who know people who might want to invest money in a film because usually mm-hmm. unless there's someone super famous involved, um, you don't get that much money mm-hmm. and um, you could, I, I think it's easier to get that same amount of money in a more, in a business way. Right. If I, if I had to recommend that to a new filmmaker, because like, let's say, 50,000 or 100,000, which you can make a movie for these days to make I mean, the, the amount of movies that actually can make that amount of money in crowdfunding is, is very, I feel like pretty rare, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't look at a lot of, of them. I, maybe you do, but um, I think that's hard to achieve. Whereas you could achieve that easier, I think, through private investors and then those investors actually can get a piece of the pie and if your project does well they could get some money back short short films i think are a different thing i mean if you want to raise ten thousand for a short film crowdfunding i think that's a good you know option but i think if you want to make a feature it's just i mean i remember when i did it i felt like i was stalking people, you know, for $5, <laughs> you know, and it just is a lot, it's a lot of work. Uh, yeah, I agree. And, and with the opening comment, I could relate to that because we have a crowdfunding patron for the stuff that we do. And it's like, uh, Oh, right. Yeah. Like, okay. And you have to invest your time, which it, when you channel your energy away from your project into promoting a crowdfunding, it defeats the purpose of creating the content in the first place because you're, you're wearing too many hats and you're getting distracted. But for, for the Patreon, uh, you know, for YouTube and podcasts, to me, Mm -hmm. that's different because you've got subscribers that want to continue to listen. And it's a, it's an ongoing thing Mm -hmm. and you can contribute or not contribute. Whereas when you're doing a film, you need to make that much money quickly you know, a lot right. of money right away. And to me, it's a little different. But um, I know there's a there's a group called the Horror Equity Fund. They have a crowdfunding for horror, which I think is great. I think niche crowdfunding is, is better. I, and there's Seed and Spark is for female films. Stuff like that, I think, can really work. I think it's the bigger, grandiose crowdfunding is where it's just tricky, you know? Right. Cause right. then you've got people who are fans of whatever genre or theme can support stuff in the areas that they want, but, it, but it's hard for, for larger amounts of money. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. That, that's up. And it's a rare, rare occasion. It's like, it's like the unicorn that the, yeah, yeah that these, these crowdfunding campaigns uh, exceed 10, 20, $30,000. That's rare cases. Well, and with everything else too, like it, it gets oversaturated. Uh, exactly. You know, it probably worked in the beginning and now it's like, well, you know. Uh, 
Another interesting factor, especially with the horror genre, you mentioned that it's tough to get finance uh, since the majority of financiers are are male. Is that currently the landscape now? Is uh, since I see the social political landscape has shifted a lot over the past few years. I think for genre films, it's still the majority, um, and it's also you know what people want to see. I think with genre films, I think people, the audiences, not everybody, because not at all everybody, everybody has a different taste, but I would say there is a large um, number of people who want to see genre films that are either very heavy in action or heavy in violence, Mm -hmm. you know, that uh, fit a certain bill or have certain actors, you know, famous genre actors in them. Mm -hmm. So if you don't, if you can't check a lot of those boxes, it's it's hard to get financing. Or if your actors aren't at a certain, you know, you'd be surprised how big of an actor you need to get for a smaller budget film. So that's always, you know, I, I hope that improves. But yeah, there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of financiers that are like Jonesen to do um, female horror. I will just say they are under impression that they need to get a name attached to the project so that way it could push that film forward into the eyes of let's say investors and audiences and they stray Mm -hmm. away from let's say upcoming talent or uh, the 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 actor or actress who doesn't have 20 or 30 indb credits is that something recommended or just go with with the talent that's there i think it just depends on how much money you have mm-hmm. um you know with my first film i don't have a soul that is known in it mm-hmm. and but you know for me it was like i wanted to make a film and i wanted to practice and um you know and it it does it does well on vod but right. it it does well for the budget that it was. Mm-hmm. If it was a, a higher budget, it, it would, n- you know, it would not be, <laughs> it would not be considered successful. And I guess you have to just decide what is success for you. Do you want to make your money back? Do you want to make money? Or do you just want to make a film that you're proud of? Right. And, you know, the goal is to accomplish all three. And, you know, it's nice if you can accomplish one of those things. Um, but yes, you do need to have a recognizable name in your film if you want to make money. And it does cost money to make films unless you are super savvy and, you know, you know, someone with a really good camera and all of that kind of stuff. You know, it still costs money. You have to feed people. You have to pay for locations, all of that stuff. So the way you can kind of control that there will be interest in what the film that you made is if there's an actor in it that people are interested in. And, you know, that's always going to be part of the, the business. The The one thing that you can do, though, is you can try to get, you know, a name that is recognizable. And then if you want to have up and coming actors, you can fill out the cast with other people. Right. And, and to have, and to have the recognized names, uh, it's, it's imperative that the filmmaker apply for SAG and that's a whole stack of paperwork right there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And everything. Yeah. And that makes everything cost more for sure. Exactly. Um, but 
but if someone is starting out, I mean, I think, you know, for your first thing that you do, you don't have to have a name and it's fun to go through the audition process and really discover talent. I, I definitely enjoyed that part of the process. And, you know, if you want to be a director, it's fun to pull uh, performances out of people and, um, you know, you're really working together as a team in that, in that respect. But yeah, there Hollywood will always want names and and if you look at your Hulu or Amazon or what have you, there's so much content out out there. So there's that's the way that you kind of try to at least get your your project a little bit more noticed. Uh, you mentioned uh, also the, the business side. Uh, and that's one aspect that filmmakers also are unaware that you have to wear two hats. You have to be the creative, the artist, and also know the entrepreneurial side of creating film because there's a whole another beast, another level that's behind the finished product. You have marketing, distribution, uh, investors, so on and so forth. Unless you're straight out of film school and you went to the direct and you've got some great producer that's going to do all that for you, usually you have to do all that yourself when you're starting out. You have to know, but it's but it's great training for how to make a film is wearing all those hats. I I wouldn't trade that all that I've learned starting small for anything because it just teaches you so much about the filmmaking process. And, you know, you don't have as many resources as you do when you're further along in the business. And, you know, to be a filmmaker, I'm, I'm fortunate that I had a producing background first because mm -hmm. I could then be responsible for making, making the films happen. Whereas a lot of directors don't have that because they just know how to direct. And so I would encourage, you know, anyone starting out to learn all the production side of things because it, all it, It just will help you to get things going because, right. you know, no, people don't really, you know, just show up and be like, Hey, want to make this movie? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. You have to kind of, you have to make it for yourself. All right. It, it, it's all about networking. And it's also about how you mentioned in, in the beginning of the podcast, you gained your experience working behind the scenes be, on set. It could get chaotic extremely fast and if you don't know what to do uh, that would really hinder and or make the cast or crew really not like you uh, because they could see that right. you're not delegating right yeah i had the pleasure of um being an assistant to the director john madden who did shakespeare in love and um all the um the marigold hotel movies and um he was such an amazing man and he was like one of the nicest people I've ever known. And he ran such a pleasant, wonderful set. And I had prior to that been on some sets with some really tough directors. And it was nice to see the, the difference that so you don't, it, just like you're saying, you don't have to be a crazy person on set. You can make it a fun mm -hmm. experience. And then those people want to work for you again, which is right. great. Right. Absolutely. It's all about creating a, a great work environment and not applying the nine to five uh, uh, strategy on set. It's also about creating the content, getting the work they done because there's no work hours right. on set. <laughs> Except for, yeah, it's nine to nine. <laughs> 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 not nine or nine 
to 11, the following 11. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and sometimes the, there's long days. You try not to go over time, but. Right. It, and that doesn't include editing. It. Editing is a different phase. That could that could take a while there too. <laughs> what are what are some of your favorite movies that you've seen this year? Horror movies. Well, uh, horror movies, hmm, I, I have just recently seen the f- Chilean film Trauma. And th- oh. yes, and what got my attention and is one of the questions I was going to deliver f- for you as well is uh, these type of films are pretty much extinct in horror cinema. Uh, I think with the social political landscape that we are in right now with sensitivity, especially towards women, that we don't see mm-hmm. exploitation films anymore. Uh, films that project women in a very bad position, but yet has this underlying story of survival. And that really fascinated mm. me, that, that particular film. I haven't seen it. I will look out for that. Sounds good. Yes, it, it's it's intense. It's one of those films that I, as a horror connoisseur, would say, okay, I only watch it once, and once is enough for me. <laughs> yeah, I think the, I'm I'm a little behind in my I've I've seen you know I saw Halloween obviously, but I'm a little I need to still catch up on some. I saw Hereditary finally, which I loved. Uh, yes, I have yet to see that. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> you have to. Yeah, I, I've heard, and I particularly en- enjoy listening to the commentary that the casual horror viewer would say, as opposed to mm-hmm. a horror connoisseur that has an astute eye for the cinematography. And it's it's across the playing field. These different opinions. Some say. Uh, these type of films don't offer jump scares. And on the other side, you say, wow, I love the angles and the stories. It's, it's a mm-hmm. mixed bag of emotions there. Yeah. I, yeah. Some people love jump scares. I, I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me as a filmmaker. I, you know, sometimes you have them, but like, I try not to write anything that feels contrived, you know, so I, I struggle with things that like I'm just putting in just to like check boxes, you know. Right. And I feel that's that is a product of Hollywood. They are really uh, pushing the PG-13 rating, the mm. something, the marketing behind the jump scares and all these little new the, the trailers to attract people. But it's really what's suffering in my opinion is story yeah well then you'll you'll like hereditary that's for sure for your upcoming project you have hunting season uh how is that project going along well we were supposed to shoot in fall but you know things just get pushed it's just part of the business um but now i think we're going in the early part of next year um, we've partnered with a company that I believe will be doing an announcement um, in January. So we don't, because of the holidays, you know, ever, it's hard to get things done right now. No, everyone's kind of already uh, mentally on vacation, you know, <laughs> but yeah, things are moving forward with it. And that's very exciting. And um, because it got pushed, it's been good for me because, I've been, I've been able to work on some other projects, um, 
so now I have a lot of, I, you know, things in the works, which is great. But yeah, I'm very excited about hunting season. It's one of my favorite scripts that I've ever written. It's, it's a lot more suspenseful and, and there's more action than the ice cream truck. It's far more a straight horror thriller. It's not as artistic, but it's definitely, you know, it's definitely my voice, but there's, it's more cat and mouse and, you know, there are two really strong female characters in it. And, uh, you know, one will be played by Jamie Lynn Siegler and the other one will be played by Deanna Russo, who was the star of my last film, The Ice Cream Truck. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at the INDB and I'm quite fascinated that uh, one, two, three, four, five, most of the cast are female. And I do love female-driven horror narratives. I'd say that that in particular, mm-hmm. especially for survival horror and thrillers, where the, the cat and mouse uh, aesthetic, especially against a dominated male antagonist, I feel those are narratives yeah. that really convey with the audience. Yeah, and rich white male antagonists. So there's even more to um, hate of them <laughs> because they're not nice. So, and then there's another per, there's another actor that we have not a- announced yet. Um, that's well, very well known, and especially in the horror community. So that'll be exciting. Hopefully, we'll be able to announce that in maybe February. Ah, so great! That's exciting. Uh, so, so with the production being pushed pushed down the calendar for a bit, uh, would it be on target for its release? Let's say uh, the fourth quarter twenty nineteen, first quarter twenty twenty. Possibly, I'm not. I'm not really sure. You know, when there's now we have a company involved, so we uh, kind of have to um, go with their thoughts. But I, I would imagine, I would guess early. 2020 or at the very maybe maybe late 2019 for release but I, I mean fortunately I my whole post team is always the same so I I'm able to bang out post-production very quickly mm-hmm. so we'll see we'll just see depends oh. on what how soon we can shoot Ah, well, fingers crossed. And I know that is one <laughs> hectic part of the film, especially when you have a company involved and everything has, every, the stars have to align. And when they do, everything works out smoothly. Yeah, we're all very excited. Um, so, you know, hopefully soon. <laughs> and um, I'm sure we'll have some announcements in January and February about the project. Oh, great. Looking forward to that. And, and of course, Ice Cream Truck, a really uh, phenomenal film. Uh, we, we we did cover that uh, last year, and much, it, it went on VOD, much success on that platform. Yeah, it's an interesting beast. You know, I all of my favorite horror films are seem to be very polarizing. I think the Ice Cream Truck is polarizing. I read reviews like there will be a five star review followed by a one star review and then so on and so forth. <laughs> it's really it just you know it's it's artistic and and definitely a female's point of view. It's not for everybody, but you know I look at other of my favorite horror films like I love The Babadook. I love It Follows. It Follows is one of my favorite horror films in the last five years, mm-hmm. and I'm always struck by so how many people hate it, mm-hmm. and I'm like really you know so I I. I think it's interesting, the horror community, because you've got people who love, you know, 
the human centipede or, you know, various like super violent stuff. And then you've got people who love like the, you know, the old Dracula movies and, and you've got people who like all, you know, zombie movies. There's just so many different styles of horror and it, it, I just, I love the discussion and, and hearing the discussion and being involved in the discussion and just how passionate everybody is. But yeah, I, for the most part, I would say people have been amazing about the ice cream truck. I'm so thrilled that people are continuing to watch it and it's still finding viewers and, you know, a lot of people can relate and, um, you know, it's, it's just a fun, fun kind of retro slasher about, you know, dealing with like the feelings of like realizing you're, you're not, you're not young anymore. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that makes me laugh because I sometimes when I have the time on what I'm pa- walking by the living room, I see these commercials for the anti-aging cream. I said, wow, are, are, is, is, are our society really living like this that we don't want to get old? <laughs> yeah. Yes, we are. Unfortunately. I mean, I think it's, I think that's been a part of life for a long time. I don't think it's about so much about what you look like. It's just, you, you know, you feel that's why shows like Stranger Things are popular. You get right. you feel nostalgic right. for your youth, right. and you know you want to feel what that felt like again. And you know whether that's what you look like or what music you listen to or things that remind you. I mean, we all we all feel like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I would love to time travel and like go look at like what. I was doing, you know, when I was 14 or something, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, I, and that also leads to these this current shift with filmmakers. They're going to ideas that were implemented to yesteryear. You bring up Stranger Things. We have films such as Summer of 84. That yeah, are, which yeah. I have yet to see. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard mixed. And mostly people really like it. Mm-hmm. And it it just brings back that nostalgic era of horror cinema. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, when, I mean, I, I turned 40 this year. So, like, to me, you know, I'm from the generation that's still at a video store. So, like, yes. we feel nostalgic about, you know, going through the horror section and, you know, seeing all the different covers and, you know, there wasn't, we weren't as inundated with the internet and obviously cause it didn't exist, but, and I'm by the way, I've, by no means like hating of technology. Like I think, if, you know, you got to move with the times, but right. yeah, there's horror was great. It was at its peak in the eighties. And so, you know, it was an exciting time to be discovering it. Right. Yeah, I remember those times too. So many of the classics, you know, were from the 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And hopefully those that haven't gotten rebooted should not be rebooted. Let let it stay as its pure tech form. Uh, Yeah. What was the last, I'm trying to think, is Saw the most recent, like, actual, like, franchise? You know what I mean? Yes. I'm Uh, trying to think. There aren't that many that. Well, the con- we have day. we have the Conjuring. We oh have, right, oh right, of uh, and, course. And, and but those the Conjuring, I guess the Annabelle, but they the, don't have as much of a a like a 
an image, you know what I mean? Like an actual villain. Other right, than yeah. Annabelle, right? Yeah, they have, well, th- th- all these spinoffs, it, it feels so generic in a way. Uh, the, the possessed doll and, Mm-hmm. I, I I prefer the story, as a matter of fact, because I, I don't consider yeah. the Conjuring horror. I like horror. the Insidious movies a lot. They, right, right. There you go. This, that's the other one I was thinking about, Insidious. <laughs> uh, but it's it's the story, those type of stories, especially when it's based on true life events uh, or uh, a bending of the reality of true life events. I find that to be more fascinating than, let's say, an inanimate object picking up a knife and going after people. It just doesn't right. <laughs> it feels comical <laughs> yeah i i've i've tried to i have one ghost script it's it's hard i think it's harder to write ghosts i i find actual people to be um scarier right. yes or or more fun to write i maybe because mm-hmm. i just want to give villains dialogue so badly right. <laughs> it would be weird if a ghost was like <laughs> Not a lot to say, right? Because, <laughs> because in reality, and 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 we see it many times in post-apocalyptic uh, uh, narratives or zombie narratives that the zombies are not the antagonizing force; it's human nature, and that's the scary mm-hmm. part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple of questions left, and we could close out our our interview. Uh, mm-hmm. One quote you you stated that that you personally love horror genre, and you think it's the best genre to break into as a director. Uh, w- with that said, uh, what are the benefits of jumping into horror? Let's say for a first time filmmaker. Um, I feel that way because the horror community is extremely loyal and they're interested in all films big and small. So if there is a new film, most people will be curious about it or want to see it. And that's a wonderful thing. And I feel that like indie films in general used to be like that or the indie community. It's not really like that anymore. Um, So if I were to make like an indie drama, you know, especially when we talked about cast, like let's say I made an indie drama without, you know, some at least, someone pretty recognizable, no one would ever see it because people don't, with regard to like video on demand, people don't really see it mm-hmm. and they wouldn't see it. They wouldn't seek it out. And then there aren't a lot of sites that are covering small indie films. Mm-hmm. Um, so then there would be no actual exposure about it, you know, whereas the horror community has a bunch of different horror sites, podcasts, all of that. And then you've got the horror fans that are curious and want to be in the know about all of, all of that stuff. So between the audience being passionate and there being a far larger platform for marketing possibilities, it's just, it's, it's far better to start in horror if you love it because of visibility. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you can go from there because, you know, a lot of people will make a small first movie, but it's it's just not, it's hard to find, you know, it's hard to find dramas. And I love indie dramas, so I'm not saying that as, you know, a poo-poo on that, but any, any niche is going to be better. So even if you're a filmmaker starting out, um, you know, if you want to make an LBGT movie, like that would be better, mm-hmm. even you know, or if you're a veteran and you want to make a movie about that experience, any niche 
that you can put on to a, a movie starting out is always going to be better because there's an audience for it. So whatever niche is passionate to you or like drug addiction or, you know, recovery, any kind of thing like that, because that's how people are going to find your film, you know, on Amazon, like they have all those subcategories and things like that. Right. And uh, good thing that you have mentioned Amazon, that the, the, the final question would be uh, from your perspective, seeing that we have all these platforms for content creators, filmmakers, musicians, so on and so forth. We have YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Do you see, or for yourself personally, utilizing these platforms to create uh, original content instead of, let's say, waiting for the next project to flourish, you creating a series here and, and on-spot material there? Oh, I'm definitely. I had a friend who worked at, uh, the company, a company that was part of the first, um, Snapchat movie. So definitely that's the way things are going. Um, I, I'm, I'm for sure open to that, you know, but I'm probably not as, I'm not as accustomed to like Snapchat and stuff as someone who's like perhaps like 25 is. So I feel like they're going to be able to utilize that better than I would, but Mm -hmm. I may need some assistance <laughs> to do something like that. But yeah, I think it's cool. You know, you got to go with the times. Things are always changing. And if you're a creator, you have to be, you know, in the know of what is the new way to do things. It's just how it is. But yeah, I, lo I still love the original way to make films. And, you know, I'll still always gravitate towards that as well. Right. Yeah. It, it just, uh, it surprises me. I hear, for example, I have mountains of equipment and I see someone, they pick up their mobile device, they edit on the fly, upload it to YouTube yeah. at a fraction of this, of the cost too. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Right. But you know, is the sound quality the same? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to, there's, I'm sure a lot of other variables or right. do people care, you know, are the people watching it? Right. Do they care as much? I don't know. Right. You know. And it has all those. Yeah, but that's true. <laughs> I, I think the best advice for any artist is to be open to, you know, all the different avenues. I think when you're closed minded to change, it's it can only affect your career negatively. Right. Uh, that That is words to live by right there. Uh, uh, to close out our interview, an open platform, anything you care to add of your upcoming projects, those you can share, and social media handles that you uh, frequent. I mean, uh, the ice cream truck is on Amazon Prime, uh, finally, so uh, anyone can watch it there for free. Um, I am Megan Friels Johnston on Instagram, if anyone wants to follow me and then I'm I think I'm number one Megan on Twitter and uh yeah and I you know I I definitely follow back and and love seeing what people are talking about I'm I'm very interested in the horror community and that's how I learn about <laughs> movies half the time is, <laughs> is through Instagram so I'm pretty active on it so yeah and um thank you for having me Well, thank you. Thank you for so much information on, on your perspectives on horror and filmmaking. And I can't wait for hunting season. I, I, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs>
Yeah, hopefully soon. And then I'm, I wrote another um, project that I plan on doing probably quickly after called uh, Payback's a Bitch, which is like a kind of one location uh, ensemble horror farce. And mm. uh, I'm really excited to make that one. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's like right after it, like uh. almost like both shot next year. Oh wow! T talk about uh, uh, filling up your calendar <laughs> year. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's great. It's great. It's great to have uh, you know fill up your calendar and really take advantage of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you gotta strike when the iron's hot. Sometimes, so hopefully, but you know, you you never know. One could go before the other. I I have no idea. But um, those are the next too and you know i'll just keep making horror movies thank you so much for your time thank you and uh best of luck yes thank you yeah happy holidays to you and um, um i appreciate you having me on thank you for tuning in to dk mag horror entertainment news podcast this was season nine episode seven a special podcast as i had mentioned at the top of this broadcast in which we are doing collaborative efforts, networking and cross promotion with other podcasters centered on the field of independent horror, whether it be video games, film, just overall horror cinema. It's great to be contributing. It's great to be collaborating with like-minded individuals. This is a field. This is a community where it's important. It's a to help your peers whether it's writing whether it's directing and in this case podcasting it's all about showcasing your material and not competition it's not a community about egos it's about helping one another this collaborative effort is one of many upcoming for the new calendar year 2019 so stay tuned we'll be providing some links calendars and who will be guest co-hosting on this podcast as well as when we will be co-hosting on other podcasts whether it be myself or my co-host stacy cox in any event You have heard three exclusive interviews here on DK Mag Horror Entertainment News Podcast. Be sure to stop on over to Everything Horror Podcast for the second segment in which we were discussing the film Krampus. Now, the second segment is an hour plus, but do go right ahead after listening to our podcast and these exclusive interviews. Once again, my name is Ken Artuz, your host and founder for DK Mag. You can find DK Mag across all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, at DK Mag, D-E-C-A-Y-M-A-G.com, and visit our website, DKMag.com. Once again, we are DK Mag, not DK Magazine or the letter D. K because we're not Donna Karen and also we are not the word decay thank you for tuning in greatly appreciate you the listener make sure you spread the word share this podcast with your friend girlfriend lover mistress 
your enemy, make them your friend. Share this podcast with them. <laughs>